This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It is Friday, folks. It's Friday. Relax. It's almost over. You made it another week. Congratulations to you. It's not just Friday. It is also Nachos Day. Mm-mm, mm-mm-mm. Sometimes they're cheesy. Sometimes they're a little hot and spicy. Nachos Day. I love a good nacho meal. That's my favorite meal. A little nachos, a little chili on it. mm mm Top of the morning to you. We won't be doing that this morning. we got a, a, a great show for you coming up. Jonathan Tassini will be joining us. You um, may have heard of him. He is the author of a book called The Essential Bernie Sanders and His Vision for America. We are going to be talking to him about uh, a book he wrote about Bernie Sanders. How does a democratic socialist become one of the front runners in the democratic process. This is crazy. A socialist? Bernie Sanders. Uh we will be learning everything we can about Bernie Sanders. You got to you got to know what's going on, right? We always, you know, hear about Hillary. All the stories tend to be about Hillary. We're going to learn more about Bernie Sanders. What really is uh what's going on in his head? Interesting, apparently before Donald Trump got in the Got in the race, Bernie Sanders, it was his hair that everyone talked about. <laughs> now, uh, they all talk about Don's, the Don. So um, anyway, we're going to find out uh, more about him in uh, just a few minutes and try to pick uh, the brain of Jonathan Tassini, the, uh, the author behind the book. And also, we, uh, we've, got, we've got a great show just Friday is a great day anyway. So throughout the show, we're also going to be reviewing um, other movies that are coming up that will be released this weekend. So you, with Rod Gustafson, you got to prepare for that. Um, plus other guests, uh, we're going to do a little uh, moment with the producers. Ben Wozden is going to be joining us. And uh, what are you going to teach me, Ben? Have you thought that through much? I mean, I know you usually like to wing it at the very end. I wouldn't call it winging it. I call it... Last-minute inspiration. Oh, they're winging it. Last-minute inspiration? Okay, yeah. We'll, we'll be doing that sometime today. I, I don't like the word wing. In yeah. It. The, the, yeah, okay. It's two words. I understand. But the way you – if you slow it down and pronounce pronounce the way you do, it sounds like one word, I guess. Hey, uh, great uh, topic today. Hey, by the way, did you hear the jobs report? Holy cow. We're back in business, folks. You may not have heard, but – the U.S. economy added 271,000 jobs in October. We're back. Problem solved. Unemployment rate down to 5%. What more do you need to do? Problem solved. It also means maybe they can raise interest rates in December. Yay. <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of those jobs are going to be seasonal. Now, they'll say that they're accounting for that, but, you know. 
We'll have to get into that. Anyway, let's uh, let's go to the headlines, find out what is going on in the rest of the world. Terry, what's up? Good morning, Matt. The uh, Fox Business Network announced the participating candidates for next Tuesday evening's Republican debate, and it includes several major shakeups to the previous lineups. The primetime debate November 10th will feature eight candidates who scored 2.5% or higher on an average of four recent national polls. Donald Trump, Ben Carson, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, Carly Fiorina, John Kasich and Rand Paul. This means Chris Christie and Mike Huckabee, two candidates previously in the primetime debates, have fallen to the so-called undercard, or I, I like to call it the kids' table. The uh, event will they will join Bobby Jindal and Rick Santorum as the lone candidates to meet the criteria of at least one percent average in polling. Gone entirely from the debate are Lindsey Graham and George Pataki. Ooh. Also, as you were asking before we uh, went on the air here, is there a Democratic debate tonight? Yes. The answer, no. Okay, good. There is a Democratic forum tonight. Ah, forum! It's on MSNBC, which explains why you haven't heard about any debates. Just, there's a forum. It's on MSNBC. Yes. So not like CNBC, because that turned into a fiasco. Yeah, so the, the the thing I see here says, this is a forum, not a debate, sanctioned by the DNC. Candidates will appear separately answering questions in an interview format. Mm. The moderator will be Rachel, Rachel Maddow. Well, that's interesting. A forum. This yes. is the first forum we've seen. There's been a couple other ones. But were they were they publicized by Rachel Maddow? No. I mean, were they yeah, moderated by Rachel Maddow? There That's was a, a big deal. Republican forum the day before the first Republican debate. Yeah. And it was just bring up one, they talk to them, bring up the next one. Except that one took like five hours because there was 90 people. Interesting. But it seems to be whittling down as uh, how long does Lin- Lindsey Graham hang around now that he can't be included in the debates. In the debate. This is, yeah, now they're starting to squeeze him out. Who knows? Being ahead in the polls can come at a price for Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump and Ben Carson. It means they're... There's enough of a threat to their safety that they've been approved to get Secret Service details, quote, within days, the Washington Post reports. The decision was authorized by the Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson. Both Trump and Carson requested taxpayer funded protection a month ago. They are the first 2016 candidates to receive Secret Service details. Hillary Clinton already had one because she's a former first lady. And so that, that comes with that uh, association. After it was revealed Wednesday in a forthcoming book that former President George H.W. Bush refers to Donald Rumsfeld as an arrogant fellow who hurt his son George W. Bush's presidency, the former Secretary of Defense fired back Thursday with a statement attacking the elder Bush's age. He was Bush 41 is getting up in years and badly misjudges Bush 43, who I found made his own decisions, Rumsfeld said. Jeb Bush was asked about his dad's comments. As it relates to Dick Cheney, he served my, my brother well as vice president, and he served my dad extraordinarily well as secretary of defense. The context changes, and the world has changed, it always changes, and the context changes as it relates to foreign policy and everything else. So looking forward, I think there are lessons to be learned from both those presidencies and the presidencies of, um, of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. That interview was recorded in a diner. That's why people were just having great conversations in the background <laughs> the as, cafeteria. They were, as they were talking. Um, in other news, more than a month before the film, Star Wars, likely shatters all box office records, the makers of Star Wars, The Force Awakens, took the time out of their busy schedule to screen an unedited version of the film for a dying fan. Daniel Fleetwood, 32, diagnosed with a rare cancer in July and given two months to live, a Star Wars superfan, one of Fleetwood's final wishes was to, was to see the new film, before he dies. Today, the 
is uh, today is a wonderful day for with Disney and Lucasfilm. People made his final dream come true in an amazing, typical Disney way. Fleetwood's wife Ashley posted on Facebook Thursday. They really do make dreams come true, uh, as reports read that Luke, uh, Lucasfilm showed up at Fleetwood's home to screen the unedited copy of the film, which doesn't open to the public till December 16th, following the personal phone call from the director, J.J. Abrams, said, I want to thank all the amazing people who came to help this make, make, make this day happen. Ashley posted on Facebook. Thank you beyond words. Uh, it goes on and says, this isn't the first time that this has happened. J.J. Abrams screened the uh, another movie that he uh, directed, uh, the, the uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, the first one where they rebooted that series for a dying fan. Back wow. in 2013. That's cool. That's, I mean, what an honor. And that's, they don't have to do that. That's really cool. Not at all. So, and there was speculation on if they were going to do this. Mm-hmm. But uh, by doing this, they, they just make more interest in the movie because now they're <laughs> oh, wow. being nice. This so. poor dying guy is like videoing the whole thing, <laughs> puts it out on YouTube. <laughs> well, it wouldn't go on YouTube. What are you going to do? Kill me? YouTube's too easy. They'll just take it down. Yeah, they will. You have to find a. A darker place of the pirated, world. Send yeah. it through the but pirates. Would, would you watch a website. movie that someone recorded on their cell phone and it's like their hands moving around? And yes, you would. Yeah. Have you ever looked at any of those copies? No, they're brutal. <laughs> but I mean, if it was that movie, come on, anybody would. But don't you ruin it? I mean, part of the enjoyment is going to the theater and actually seeing it on the big screen, not this little mm. cell phone. Mm. You don't like that? It's a lot of work. All right. It's Friday. It's just a lot of work. Well, interesting. Okay. Good news, actually. Very good news. We, um, we got a great guest coming up. Jonathan Tassini will be joining us. If, uh, you know, tonight at the forum somewhere, there's the Democratic Forum today taking place tonight. And it's going to be, of course, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley. Uh, I don't know if there are any other Democrats that have jumped in the race. But in the end... Uh, what do you know about Bernie Sanders? We know he honeymooned in Russia, and uh, we also know that he uh, is a democratic socialist, and he used to be the guy everybody would laugh at because of his hair until the Trumpster got in. Now uh, we're going to be finding out more about the great candidate Bernie Sanders, a little bit more about his history with our next guest, the author of the book The Essential Bernie Sanders and His Vision for America – Jonathan Tassini will be joining us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, what would make anybody want to get into politics, really? It is such a crazy life. It's, I mean, I guess everyone thinks it's just ego, but deep down, we've all, you know, we want to serve. We want to help. Um, uh, but uh, Bernie Sanders is taking a lot of people by surprise this year and wanted to give you some facts about Bernie that you may not know. Just interesting stuff, but... When you when it comes down to it, you know Senator Bernie Sanders, who's represented Vermont as an independent in the House and the Senate for nearly 25 years, he he's a different kind of figure, and but he is somebody that these young, crazy, liberal, 
youth in college, they're loving. And he's bringing great uh, large crowds are joining to, to listen to him. Bernie Sanders is 73 years old. And this is one of his favorite lines that you'll hear a lot. Um, in fact, if you've listened to the, the, their last debate, this is the line you'll hear, hear over and over and over from him. How does it happen, I won't do it in his voice, that the top 1% owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%? You heard that? The top 1% owns as much as the bottom 90%. Um here are some other facts about Bernie Sanders that uh, you might want to think about. He won a second term in the Senate with 71% of the vote in 2012. His second term with 71% of the vote. Vermont likes Bernie Sanders. He was the third socialist ever elected to Congress, which made a really interesting debate last time because he's talking about socialism. Do you remember that used to just be with communism? That was the word you never wanted to say. And he's just out there saying it. Not a big deal. Uh, A couple of other interesting things. He moved to Vermont in 1964 after graduating from the University of Chicago with a bachelor's degree in political science. While in college, he marched for civil rights. Sanders was an organizer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was part of a contingent of students from former Chicago uh, who traveled by bus in 1963 to the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He was elected mayor of Burlington the first time by 10 votes in 1981. And after that contest, he won three more terms. He once spoke on the Senate floor for eight hours. You know, it kind of sounds like Rand Paul. Um, a little filibuster moment. He was... Uh, he once spoke on the Senate, or he lists 18 priorities on his Senate website, which includes civil liberties, dental care, war and peace, women's rights. His older brother, Larry, uh, is running for a seat in the British Parliament. His older brother is a resident of Oxford since 1969 and is a member of the Green Party um, over in Britain. That's interesting. Man, could you have a, you have a sitting senator and a... And a son in the British Parliament. That could be a really big coup for the Sanders family. Uh, Bernie does share uh, some ideas with conservatives, like a deep suspicion of government threats to privacy. He uh, joined up with Senator Rand Paul in Kentucky. He's, uh, he's pretty social for a senior, meaning Bernie Sanders. He's, he's pretty good on the social media, Twitter and Facebook. He's got a lot of stuff going on with him there. And uh, he's the former uh, a former war protester uh, and was one of the people that was afraid of America being sucked into the quagmire in the fight on ISIS. So he's been he's been active and uh, we've we've asked somebody that knows him better than all of us in preparation for the forum tonight um, to come and just talk a little bit more about the essential Bernie Sanders, the author of the book, The Essential Bernie Sanders. Uh, Jonathan Tassini is um, our guest today. Uh, The name of the book is The Essential Bernie Sanders and His Vision for America. His goal is to build a movement to take back our country from the rich and the powerful and return it to the rightful owners, we the American people. We're uh, honored to have Jonathan Tassini joining us today. Jonathan, are you there? Yes, I am. Pleasure to be here with you. You bet. Great to have you here. Man, um, What's it like? Now, how, how did you get involved in writing a book for Bernie Sanders? How did that come about? Well, 
the first thing is it, it's not really for Forward, yeah. it, it was really and the structure of the book is it's really for the voters because as a writer and I know as a media person you, you'll you relate to this I had to get out of the way of kind of bridging between the the voters and Bernie Sanders because a lot of people as you point out correctly don't know him very well right. so 95 95% of this book is his words so it's not really deep analysis. It's by chapter on many, many issues, very short so people can dive into it. Let's say you're interested in civil rights or immigration or whatever it is. You can dive into one chapter and you just you read exactly what his position has been for a very long time. Mm. Did and, you just sit down and interview him then and, and, and then you were able to get all of his words? Is that how you did it? Well, it's a little bit in, indirect. Some of that's true and some of that's not. So to step back, I've known Bernie for a very long time because one of the other hats I wear is a, is a labor activist. I ran the Writers Union for many years. And because I live in the Northeast, Bernie's from the Northeast, from Vermont, uh, I would run into him down in Washington lobbying on various workers' mm-hmm. issues. And he was always with us, um, always very supportive. And about two and a half years ago, I did a long interview with him for Playboy magazine. Uh, which is probably one of the only places in the world where you can somebody can talk for a very long time about issues that, you know, it's a Q&A format. Right, right. And out of that, we just began a conversation, and I'm giving you the short version here, and, and when he decided to run for president uh, earlier this year, I decided that the best thing I could contribute was this very short book. Um, it's called The Essential Bernie Sanders, not the complete Bernie Sanders, so... <laughs> not every single position, but but the key issues are there. People can carry it around. They can use it to debate friends. They can use it to convince somebody to be supportive, or if they're not sure, they could learn about him. Now, some of that um, interview from Playboy comes up in extras, but a lot of it is um, from his speeches, from his positions. I basically sat on my butt for, you know, 12 hours a day and collected this stuff and did the book from the time that the publisher said, send me an outline until the time it was finished was 22 days. Oh, wow. Wow. That is fast. Yeah, but and, 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 and be clear, it, it was a lot of work, but in the pre-age of Google, you could not do this book that quickly. Right, right. Because what I, what I was able to do was basically search the great wide web and co- collect things that I already knew were there, but also begin to think about what would be in the book. I think the hardest part of the, about the book, frankly, was to decide what was in it and what wasn't, to keep it short mm. and sweet so people could find it very useful as a handbook, uh, and then cut stuff out and edit it. That was really the biggest challenge, because oh, there's bet. a lot of stuff out there about Bertie. He's been out there talking about these issues for 10, 20, 30 years. What, talk to us about Bernie the man. What's he like? What's his... I mean, it, just tell us about his personality. What's he like as a human being? Well, anybody who's seen a video of him or seen him in the debates or seen him at rallies, in a lot of ways, he's very much like that one-on-one. Now, good. Which is he – and that's the, the great thing about Bernie, in my opinion – he is really, really authentic, and that's what I talk about in the introduction to the book. Um, he's not phony. He doesn't make up his positions. And so he's kind of not 
uh, no-nonsense. He's not going to be like one of these phony politicians that smiles and tries to be your best friend in 30 seconds to kind of seduce you, if you will. Right. He's just right for the issues. And I'll never forget, I walked, in, walked into his office when I first did that long interview for Playboy, yeah. you know, uh, almost now three years ago, sat down, and I was always about to ask the first question. He immediately had a, a bunch of papers he wanted to give me about a bunch of issues about inequality. So he wasn't going to wait for me to ask questions. He had an agenda, and that's very much the way he is. He's very focused on the issues and on policy. And in a certain way, he doesn't do the kind of normal thing that people expect from politicians. Yeah. Thank heavens, huh? Because a lot of people are sick of that, and yet there's certain people that are getting a lot of attention in the media cycles, Bernie's one of them, um, but uh, Donald Trump, Ben Carson, it's kind of the, the the people that are angry, the people that are trying to push back for the people seem to be getting a lot of attention today. What, what do you think is his appeal? Well, I think Bernie's appeal in the Democratic primary is probably twofold. Um, one is what I said before, that he is authentic. Yeah. And particularly what really strikes me is I, I'm a little older. Not, not, you know, I feel still young. But <laughs> when I walk, watch the rallies, and I've gone to them, I've been in every state, and I'm about to actually go to Nevada and Iowa next week to do this Bernie 101 that I've been doing to various crowds. It's kind of a condensed version of the book. What you see is like a ton of young people, and I, I always kind of smile. You got twenty-year-olds being completely um, enraptured and captivated by a seventy-plus-year-old <laughs> guy, and it's it's kind of striking. I think that's because they feel very secure with him, and that he is authentic, and he's not, you know, I don't want to use a foul word, but he's not laying on a bunch of bulls. Right? Know yeah, exactly. And he's not. He's not. He's not fake, and because he's genuine, they. They buy it. They they can trust what he's saying. And the reason they buy it is because his authenticity comes from saying in principled manner the way what he said for 30 and 40 years. Mm. And that leads me to the second point. I think a lot of people are not prepared to someone who is running one of the most fraudulent campaigns. I think the most fraudulent campaign in Democratic primary history, and that's the status quo candidate. And who is prepared to say anything to get elected. She's switching her positions on virtually every issue simply based on polling, and it's just a fraud. Right. People should just be aware that it's a fraud and that if, God forbid, she became president, you would see very quickly that none of the positions being held of significance in the primary would ever come to pass in a Clinton presidency. It's kind of astonishing how fraudulent it really is and that the way in which the press buys it. And so far... I think a lot of it's about celebrity, and we'll see what happens in actually the vote count, but I'm very confident that Bernie will win and be the nominee. Really? But clearly, clearly, I think that the, this is the comparison. It's really comparing, as I say, it's a political revolution versus the status quo. That's the bottom line. If you want the status quo, you've got a really good candidate who is the candidate of the status quo. But this is really about a political revolution. It goes back to the point I made before about why young people are so drawn to this campaign, because they don't want to spend the next... 30, 40, 50 years of their life living with the same status quo nonsense that they've had seen in their young years and right. their parents have to live through. I've seen um, – there's been a little pushback. Uh, one of the great moments of the Democratic debate was when Bernie basically 
said how sick and tired of hearing about the emails he was he was and um then it's it sounded like he was backing off of that so clarify for us what you think was going on there cuz somewhere in the, i was hearing it on CNN and some other sources where he he wasn't saying he the 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 investigation shouldn't go on about Hillary Clinton's uh, emails he he was just saying he was tired of hearing about it was he backing off of that point, or was that just blown out of proportion? Well, I, I haven't really paid attention to the last um, few days of that coverage about that issue, because, frankly, like him, and I've actually said this myself before Bernie mentioned it, I'm sick of this discussion because I actually think it's kind of a phony argument. Yeah. The, the emails. You know, people, and I think progressives or even anybody should be, not for this for two reasons. One is it obscures a real debate about the issues, uh, and many issues of which are much more important on oh, which yeah. Hillary Clinton should be disqualified from running for, pre- for being president, including her immoral vote for the Iraq war. But the second thing is, honestly, it's not like she passed on the launch codes for, the, for nuclear <laughs> weapons in these emails. It's a lot of what happens in classification, we've seen this through the Ed Snowden and WikiLeaks revelations, it's just embarrassing stuff that the government doesn't want you people to read about because it says, you know, an email from one official to another saying, God, isn't the head of that state an idiot? And we can't trust him, things like that. It's not like these national security things are giving up uh, secrets that are endanger individuals. It's just embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And so I think actually this email stuff is nonsense. And uh, and as I said, the, frankly, honestly, this is the best gift to the Clinton campaign. And this is the ironic thing, this email thing, because what it does is it makes the picture look like it's the Democrats versus the horrible Republicans. Right. And how crazy the Republicans are. It makes Hillary Clinton look like this victim of these overreaching Republicans. And people naturally, Democrats, I mean, rush to want to defend anyone who's being attacked by Republicans, when in fact, there needs to be a fundamental debate in the Democratic primary, separate from all this nonsense about the Republicans, about who is the best representative of Democrats, who will take on the billionaires, who's going to initiate a political revolution, and it isn't the status quo candidate. And so it, it's muddying the water it, it is, is really what it ends up doing, doesn't it? You you want to get out to the debate and get let's just get the ideas out there and let Bernie's ideas go against Hillary's ideas, not get smoked out by all of these other issues. That's precisely right. And it, you know, take the Iraq War for example. This is the, to me the most important thing that's happened in the last thirteen, fifteen years in terms of foreign policy. The death of hundreds of thousands of people, Iraqis and Americans, the waste of two to three trillion dollars and counting, and that's an estimate by. Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stiglitz, not to mention the creation of ISIS. ISIS would not have existed without the fracturing of the Middle East due to the Iraq war. And when it came to it, and this is when Hillary Clinton actually had a vote, not as Secretary of State flying around, racking up hundreds of thousands of miles, she took an immoral position. She believed George Bush, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld. And as Bernie Sanders said, back in that time. He does, didn't believe them. And if you go back and watch on YouTube, thank God for YouTube, right? Yeah. Uh, Bernie made a five, six, seven-minute speech making clear why he opposed the Iraq war, and every single one of his points was prescient. Every single one of the points he made came to pass 10, 15 years later. Mm. 
And just on that basis alone, I believe that that disqualifies Hillary Clinton from ever being in the White House. It's certainly not being the Democratic um, candidate, the nominee. And it shows the kind of morality and smart sense that Bernie Sanders represents that you've got to take diplomacy over war. Yeah, totally. You know what? Let's do this. Let's take a break, Jonathan. We're speaking with Jonathan Tassini, who is the author of uh, the book, The Essential Bernie Sanders and His Vision for America. We'll take a break, come back, continue learning more about Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's interesting. You don't you hear about him, but you don't. What you hear about with Bernie is he's so clear on his policies And he doesn't get caught up in a lot of this other smoke that we end up chasing. I want to learn uh, more about the guy, the man, um, Bernie Sanders. His uh, Also, just his life, who he is, where he came from, and how a socialist, democratic socialist, is is so popular. Let's uh, keep picking Jonathan Tassini's brain. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with uh, the second Democratic um, forum, I guess we're calling it, not debate that's taking place tonight, we wanted to take a closer look at one of the leading Democratic candidates, Bernie Sanders. He really is the candidate of change. And um, our guest today, Jonathan Tessini, wrote a book entitled uh, The Essential Bernie Sanders and His Vision for America. As you can uh, tell if you've been listening, Jonathan Tessini knows a lot about Bernie um, and uh, we wanted to pick his brain to find out what's really going on. Why are so many people out there feeling the burn of Bernie Sanders? So, Jonathan Tassini, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. It's fun. I mean, just to learn more about these candidates, talk about uh, the socialist side. It, because, you know, forever that was like a death knell to even say that or to be that. Talk about how that's taking how, – how his positioning as a socialist, a democratic socialist, what, what do we need to know about that? How should that not scare people? Well, you know, as I said previously, I do believe that Bernie Sanders will be the nominee and he will be the next president of the United States. Yeah. But if, if whatever happens, win or lose, the most – the best thing coming out of this is, in fact, this debate about democratic socialism, that at the end of the day, far more people are going to understand what that's about. And a lot more people are going to think, you know, going to shrug the shoulders, particularly in going to our previous points. Young people don't really give a hoot about that. Right. No, right. And what happens is because, you know, in the same way that young people just shrug the shoulders about um, gay marriage and um all sorts of issues, yeah. smoking pot. It's the same thing about democratic socialism. They just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's part of life. And they want to look at the content. And Bernie does not shrug away from that. What he does is very simple. He says, yes, I'm a democratic socialist, and here's what it means. And it goes back to when I first sat down with him, he was struck. And I think this led him very strongly to think about running for president, that he was where the majority of the American people were. That if you talk about expanding Social Security, not cutting it, but actually expanding it. And a majority of people support that. If you ask people, should we break up the big banks, 
a majority of people support that. If you ask ask a majority of the people, a majority of people say billionaires are getting away with too much and aren't paying their fair share in taxes. That they're store they're stashing money in foreign places abroad, right. uh, abroad, and that's not right. And you just go down the list and on every single issue. Bernie is where the majority of people are, and I think that's somewhat reflected in the polling that shows that he's actually the strongest candidate against a number of Republicans, including Donald Trump and others, hmm. because people want to know what you stand for and what are you going to do for me. And I think they're sick of this sort of sloganeering. Yeah. Now, he's very proud of what it – having been a Democratic Socialist – but he immediately moves to kind of an American understanding of what that means in practical terms. Yeah, I mean, the older generation, just the word socialism doesn't jive. It's just not. But in, in the new, in the new mindset, kind of the millennial mindset, it's it's not as it's not as polarized. One of the things I do see about Bernie is a lot of politicians on either side of the aisle. They just love him. And they love working with them because they always know where they stand. Um, it seems like, let's say he, let's say he wins the nomination, like you're saying, is he the kind of guy that can get in and could get something done with both sides of the party, and and could he ever really pay for some of his ideas? Well, let's take those two things separately a little bit. The the first thing is, let's face it, and he says this all the time in every single rally. When he takes the oath of office, January 20th, 2017, it's not as if things are going to change overnight. He looks at a political revolution as probably taking a decade. Because let's face it, Republicans are going to probably control the House of Representatives probably to the next census. Mm-hmm. Even if the Democratic Party takes over the Senate, which is a you know relatively um, strong possibility, given where the elections are going to be in what states and the candidates that are going to be running in those elections it's still going to be very tough to pass things. So what he's probably going to have to do is say to the public and keep this, this movement mobilized and say, okay, in the next cycle of elections, we're going to target X number of people unless they agree to support our agenda, move the agenda. And it's going to take some time, and I think he's very aware of that. That said, I think that's going to face any Democrat. And on the electoral prospectors, I believe actually the Democrats risk losing the White House if Hillary Clinton is a nominee, far more than if Bernie Sanders is a nominee, for lots of reasons. Now, on the question of paying for his um, program, there's been a lot of chatter about that yeah. there in the public. And in particular, there was a Wall Street Journal article that pegged the cost of Bernie's program to $18 trillion oh, wow. for a decade, roughly. Yeah. Which actually, when you use that number, yes, people say, well, but actually the gross domestic product over that uh, time would be about $240 trillion. Mm. So $18 trillion has to be put in that perspective. It's roughly a, a, a percentage and a half or so of the gross domestic product, which is pretty tiny. And the second thing to know is that you can take, and I, when I go out and do this Bernie 101 presentation, I have a whole pile of ping pong balls, and I take a handful and put them in one cup and leave 75% of them in this big little container. And all that 75% of ping pong balls is all about health care costs. And what Bernie has been for for 10, 20, 30 years is a single-payer system, Medicare for all system, which would lower the cost to 2 or 3% administrative costs. The private industry is about 15 to 25%. It would reallocate money we already spent. So that $18 trillion, it's not as if it's due money. 
We're already spending that on CEO salaries, on premiums, on co-pays, on drug prices. Actually, if you put in a Medicare for All system, which would kill the insurance industry and get rid of the drug industry's outrageous profit, you would lower roughly by about $5 trillion the cost over those 10 years. And every single country in the world who has gone to a single-payer Medicare for All system has showed that it dramatically lowers its cost. Hmm. Yeah. It's the only economic sane way to go. And Bernie has been for that for 20, 10, 20 years. And I say that particularly to the people who are now facing these huge premium increases under the Affordable Care Act, which, as Bernie says, it's great that the president covered more people. That's very good. But the cost of these premiums is still too high. Mm -hmm. And the only way to change that is through a, a, a system that everybody in the Western world uses, a single-payer system. And I go back to your point, and that is the biggest, you know, chunk of the cost. But it's money we're already spending. Yeah, and, and that's that gets back to the sloganeering thing you're saying, because out there, amidst all of the candidates on both sides of the debate, um, that we just hear so much sloganeering and so many numbers being thrown out there about single payer system and uh, Obamacare being repealed anyway. I mean, it's like. How do we ever get ahead? Again, that's really truly what I just – you know, I wasn't traditionally even ever looking at Bernie Sanders. But you, I love how clear he is and I love how succinct he is and authentic as you say. Oh, if we could all catch more burn um, and, and just get more of that in our political system. Talk to me um, just because I know my listeners are going to want to know more about – Bernie the man. He's married. Does he have kids? What's his? What's yep. he like? I mean, he he's... Kids. He has kids. He has grandchildren. Uh, he eats ice cream. Um, he has two, <laughs> you know, he walks with two legs like everybody else. He does? Okay. He's you not know, like a three-legged walker. Okay. No, he's not a three-legged walker. <laughs> uh, he only has two eyes as far as I could tell. Does he have hobbies? Um, what are well, his hobbies? Well, I think, honestly, his hobbies are his passion for politics. Huh. He's one of these people. That, you know, he he really... Is always been a social movement person. If you go back to the years when he was mayor of Burlington, mm. and then you look at his time in Congress, and now he has served in the United States Senate, you know, he's always been a guy who is really just focused on this, on, the, on politics, on changing the country, and on being a social movement person. That's, that's basically him. And I don't think he has, you know, a huge number of hobbies outside of that because I think he spends oh, yeah, most of his waking hours on politics yeah. and on public policy and trying to make a better world. It is what it is. It's what, it's what consumes him. What's his wife's name? Jane. It's... Who's a wonderful person. Jane is, you know, Jane is, um, Bernie tends to be very, very, um, you know, straight to the point. He's very much about the policy. He's not going to be this guy who wants to necessarily say, let's go have a beer. Jane is in some way the person who is more of the touchy-feely person. Is she, and yeah. You'll see, actually, when she travels through them all the time. And one of the things, if you pay attention, if you watch kind of rallies, particularly in C-SPAN, where they show the after-speech time, she's always walking with him. When people want to take selfies and pictures, she's always the one that grabs the camera or the <laughs> phone for someone. That's great. And poses them and takes the picture for him. I've seen this a number of times. And Jane and I have had a very good conversation and she loved the book and when we did kind of uh, some adjustment meaning adding in the second printing just some bullet points there was not there were no actual mistakes but she said why don't we say this and this 
she was she's a great editor. Too. Mm. So she contributed some ideas about how to just add some things, you know, bullet point here, bullet point yeah. there, which were really very helpful. Yeah, I don't, the media needs to get do a little behind the scenes on Bernie and get to know his family and his life. And I mean, I think he's a he's a fascinating guy. Um, hey, as we wrap it up, Jonathan, talk about what what if you know in one minute, what would you say is the one thing that we need to know about Bernie um, that that maybe would blow our mind a little bit, that, or that would just make us uh, you know if we weren't a traditional follower, if we weren't somebody that was traditionally easily going to just follow Bernie's movement, what's something that might uh, sway us? Well, I guess I go back to the the book, The Essential Bernie Sanders, which you can get on Amazon, by the way. Um, It's what I said in the very beginning. You know, I've been around politics most of my adult life, and even political people who are my friends have a certain amount of bull, you know what, and my meter goes off. It's not true with Bernie. He really oh, is so great. an authentic person. And what you see him speak and the way he is in public in front of 20,000 people is the way he is one-on-one. That's what you want. I mean, really. It's, I... It's, it's the best thing you want in a president because you know that, and we've had so right. many experiences of electing people who then don't do what they promised. He's a guy who's going to do his best at that, and he is really who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and not that we have time to get into this, but one thing that I do respect is he's from Vermont, and the and, and he's not in he's not in the pocket of the NRA, but he will support what his people want, and um, to do that as as a democratic a socialist democrat democratic socialist, I mean, it's like. He's willing to be what his people voted and elected him to be, and yet still push where he can. I mean, he's that's yeah, he powerful. Very much, he, very, he very much um, wants to serve his constituents, and I've had many examples of the way in which he's really, particularly as mayor, but even as a senator, he's very attuned to addressing people's individual yeah. needs. And I think he elevates the entire game. So... Um, I, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you, Jonathan, and the great work you did on the book. Again, the name of the book, everybody, you got to go look for it. Uh, the book is called The Essential Bernie Sanders and His Vision for America, author Jonathan Tassini. Thank you so much for being with us. Truly is, um, I mean, I do. I truly believe Bernie Sanders elevates the game for everybody. Um, and, you know, whatever way anyone's going to vote, go vote. Go vote your conscience. But know who these people are. Know what they're thinking. Don't just take a phrase from somebody's playbook that uh, is being spewed through the media. Read about them. Learn about them. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you have the ability? So some people in that interview, I know we're going crazy. <laughs> because obviously our guest, Jonathan Tassini, wrote the wrote a book on Bernie Sanders. He's biased, right? He believes in Bernie. But do you have the ability to sit and listen to what he's saying and not get angry? Do you have the ability to hear 
opposing views that you don't necessarily agree with or love and not get angry. Because one of the things I believe we lack in this uh, country, and I think just in humans in general, is the ability to to actually be open enough to hear what someone's saying. Are you are you able to actually appreciate a Bernie Sanders, even if he doesn't, even if he's not someone you'll vote for? Do you do you have the ability to understand? Is there a difference between a democratic socialist versus a socialist? Do you even do you care or do you just the word socialist? I just hate. Um, anyway, I think it's important as we try to figure out how in this world we're going to, you know, open up our discussions and be more open and willing to hear other people. We as humans have the ability to disagree with somebody and yet understand them. And a lot of people feel like if I spend time trying to understand you, it's like I agree with you. And I don't want you to think I agree with you. But uh, whether you like Bernie Sanders' ideas or not, the more you understand them, the more you could understand how to either take what the benefits of what his views are. It's interesting how many um, people are following Bernie because they, they like what they hear. If you're a college student and you have a, a candidate saying, hey, let's let's figure out a way where we don't have to go into so much debt. You don't have to carry so much debt to go to college. What if we could get you and pay for your college or have governments help pay for the schooling? Well, if you're a college student that's now $25,000, $30,000 in debt and you don't have great job prospects, you like that idea. You like it. So if you're a Republican, you might want to listen to that because there's a lot of people that need help or you know, expand, extending Social Security benefits or whatever. Anyway, there's a lot to learn, and you can learn it even from the people that you think you're against or are your enemies. Anyway, interesting stuff. Trying to just bring you as much information as we can so you can make better decisions as you get to the polls in one year, by the way. Uh, interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More tools, more ideas for you right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information you need to grow healthier, happier lives. Top of the morning to you. <laughs> that does sound like it's magically delicious. A little bit Irish. A little bit Irish, a little bit rock and roll. If you're in. You're into the Osmonds. There you go. Hey, um, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, is it possible that Western cultures have cornered the market on creativity? There are trends that may hmm? lean that direction, if you want to think about it. According to our guests, we'll be talking to in just a few moments, um, apparently 95% of all measurable creativity 
has taken place in Western cultures. Now, current creativity? Yeah. Okay. Well, over the last 600 years. Okay. Well, that's pretty current. Pretty current. And so, um, like, what is the deal? Why? Why? Why have other cultures not stepped up? Or? Why are they not stepping up? All right. Lars Tveed will be joining us. And he's going to answer the question. How the West basically cornered the creative market. And by the way, can we keep it? Because he sees signs that we're losing it. It's the, slipping away. It's slipping away. Doesn't he call it creative decay? Yeah. That what he mentioned? Just the idea that at some point – well, it, I, I've kind of looked at like you have like an industrial revolution in a country and you get to a certain point and everyone's good with it. And then you yeah. get a bunch of art majors and we lose our, <laughs> our edge when it comes to right. industry and, and building. And then you see who has – and I, I guess if you look at who's in engineering colleges, who's doing the scientific degrees, who's right. going after those types right. of achievement – they're people from other countries, not from, like, say, the United well, States. And maybe it, maybe it has to do, too, with, you know, how hungry you are. Maybe being too hungry makes you less creative. Maybe being too hungry makes you more creative. Maybe being fat and happy makes you less creative. When I was in college, yeah, they'd ask you the, the, the first question, what's your major? Yeah, <laughs> I would say I'm in communications. And they go, oh, oh the okay. humanities. That's cute. Yeah, that's great. great. Thanks. Good luck with that. You're not going to help society at all. Okay, yeah. moving on. You know, that's why Ben wants to do engineering. Yeah. But did you hear what he said the other day? No. Uh, we had an engineer in here, and he's like, "What? Um, what kind of engineer do you want to be?" And Ben's like, "Trains, trains. Just want to do trains. I'm drive the trains. But I, I want fast trains." <laughs> and then we're like, "Anyway, don't worry about Ben." This is slander, I'd like to point out. This is true. Where do you think I would get that? And he's like, if you watch Thomas, Thomas oh, the Train. I love Thomas the Train. This is a fabri- now, fabrication like, now, of a story. Now, now, Chuggington's kind of a knockoff of Thomas, but nope. I kind of like that show too. Can I just tell you what's weird? Um, <laughs> don't even know what you're talking about. Chuggington. Well, I got a four-year-old. He, yeah. likes, he likes trains that he likes talk sh- and like, have faces. So he and Ben have a lot in common. You have to know these things when the four-year-old demands Netflix. I spent then the next day trying to explain to Ben that there's other types of engineers than just train engineers. Yes. But, I know I look like I'm four years old, but I actually am. And then he kept saying, choo-choo. I'm like, yeah, Ben. But we had that engineer in, and you said what kind of engineer you wanted to be, Ben, or look into, or? Trains. Mechanical. Mechanical, and this guy was a... Like he was a chemical, chemical. Yeah, chemical. chemical, yeah. He went, oh, I'm a chemical engineer. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. Oh he okay. Kinda, yeah. He, it was kind yeah. of like he kind of shamed you a little bit mm-hmm. on. It was like, oh, mechanical. Okay, fine. You know, that's that's oh, that's your brain only works that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. It's like you're you're lower on the hierarchy of uh-huh. engineering degrees. It's like a brain surgeon when they talk to, I don't know, like a foot doctor, a pediatrician. They're like, oh, that's great. So you're kind of a. Jack of all trades type of yeah. doctor. Okay. okay, I specialize. You've never actually stuck your hand in some human, and and held their heart while it was beating. You, you tap their knee and listen to their heart. That's cute. <laughs> That's so. Pretty. You're a monster. Uh, and Medi- ben, met shaming in the medical industry. I'm going to look that yeah. up. See if that. You know, the, did you notice that when Ben gets mad, he, his voice goes up about four yeah. octaves? It's so weird. Hey, this is how we know creativity is uh, is still strong. In the Western culture, okay? A man is accused of stealing a forklift to rip an ATM from a bank. 
I don't know any other way you would do it. There he goes. They're pretty heavy. One of two men accused of using a stolen forklift to rip an ATM from a Chester County, South Carolina bank last week has been jailed on multiple charges, according to the Chester County Sheriff's Office. Nathan Eric Thomas, um, 48, is charged with two counts of grand larceny, burglary, safe cracking, malicious injury to personal property valued at $10,000 or more, four counts of criminal conspiracy, and probably driving a forklift without a license. That perpetrator has three first names. That perp has, he does. Nathan Eric Thomas. Is it Nathan Eric or Thomas? Which one? Uh, apparently what he did is he stole the forklift from uh, in Chester County and then used the equipment to remove the ATM from a bank. Thomas and a second suspect who has not been arrested or publicly named by authorities um, are accused of conspiring to steal the forklift and the ATM. By the way, do you just pull up? With your forklift, steal the ATM, throw it in the back of a truck, and then run away? Do you leave the forklift or do you just try to get away in the forklift with the ATM you, you on it? You need to have a truck because the forklift has a top limit of speed, obviously. that You need to be able to move it somewhere else. It could be one of the slowest you know, getaways ever. <laughs> but the forklift is – the forklift is actually dangerous and so it could be used as like a – A weapon. A weapon. Exactly. It's like, it's like a – it's like having two spears and a car. Yeah. It's like three weapons. Yeah. Plus yeah. it can crush. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. The ATM, um, by the way, valued at $50,000 and it had more than 113000 in cash. Did they get it open? I don't think so. Because that's the other thing with the ATM is they make it almost next to impossible to open. The deputy saw a truck with a large box in it. By the way, just so you know, anybody out there thinking of doing this – these um, ATMs have a GPS tracking device in them. Yeah. They probably didn't know that. Yeah. And it's probably locked inside, like in the safe part. So yeah. it's hard to turn off. It's not like it's on the outside and you push a button. And so they tracked safe. it down. It all happened. It all went down around 4 a.m. And then they the ATM was tracked with its GPS tracker and they could tell it was moving. <laughs> and the deputy saw a truck with a large box in the back. After police started following the truck, it ran off the roadway and into a ditch striking a fence. They just went, oh, bail, got out of there. Two people dressed in black. Ah, another suspicious that, activity. That's another thing. Exited the truck and ran into the wooded area. They just drove the truck into the ditch and took off. So You just park it. You don't have to drive it into the ditch. Yeah, no. It's hard to control when you've got this incredibly heavy, safe bonk bouncing around the back. Anyway, you know, who says we're not creative? They still are in South Carolina. And Ben, someday, will be a train engineer. Creativity abounds. Just to spite you. That's right. Choo-choo. Let's take a look now at the headlines. Terry, you got any headlines for us? I do. Just eight Republican presidential candidates have qualified for next Tuesday's primetime debate. Host uh, Fox Business Network announced Thursday night. Two didn't even make the cut for the underclass debate. New Jersey Governor Chris Kirstie and Mike Huckabee have dropped down. To the, from the main event to the undercard debate while uh, New York Governor Judge, uh, George Pataki and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham will not appear on the debate at all. So is this the way we're going to whittle the field down? Yes, it's called the good, better, best. And now you've got good, Lindsey Graham, but not good enough, better and best. All right. Slow Ho- and steady. Hopefully this, this continues and we can just They're going to do this out. to irritate the candidates until they just explode. We're done. 
Uh, during an appearance on the Kelly File Thursday night, Republican presidential frontrunner Ben Carson told Megyn Kelly that the person he tried to stab when he was younger was a close relative. He also alleged that he spoke to the person today and that individual did not want their name to be publicized. This is a deviation from a previous retelling of the event in which a classmate was mentioned as the individual involved. Carson also pushed back against investigations into his past, saying, I would say to the people of America, do you think I'm a pathological liar like CNN does, or do you think I'm an honest person? CNN is suggesting that the stories are fabrications. Well, hold on. He, he's he got to be careful, because <laughs> yesterday he said he's a – in his book it says it was – pathological angry man so he's not a pathological liar he's a pathological angry man that's who he was don't use the word (laughs) just don't use the word pathological he's the more you talk about these that's why when you started i I hadn't really read much on this and you mentioned it yesterday and my question was why is he doing this this can't help him because all this does is the media will go in and try to vet all the details and find out if you are Telling tall tales. And then what does that mean for you? But he, the problem is the book was out in 1990. Yeah. So the die was cast. I'll explain that to Ben later. Okay. Uh, planes and passengers were left stranded on the runway just as a small portion of the 20,000 British nationals currently stuck in Egypt saw their hopes dashed by international security concerns following the crash of a Russian airliner. Some British-bound flights were able to make it out of Egypt this morning, but discount flyer EasyJet issued a statement saying that only two of its 10 scheduled flights will be flying because of restrictions. Egyptian government officials say the British government was too quick to suspend flights. British Prime Minister David Cameron on the decision. The reason we've acted before that is because of intelligence and information we had that gave us the concern that it was uh, more likely than not. EasyJet in a statement says that the airline was working with the UK government at the highest level for a solution. This morning, Russia has also suspended all flights out of Egypt because of security concerns. And finally, authorities believe an elderly Austrian woman uh, must have hated her heirs after they found more than $1 million in cash cut up on her bed, according to reports. What? The 85-year-old woman died in a retirement home surrounded by thousands of destroyed euros and 100 and 500 notes, according oh. to an Austrian newspaper, and shredded uh, savings account books. Authorities who believe the woman was trying to spite her heirs announced the bizarre find on Thursday. If she indeed was trying to teach her relatives a lesson, she failed. If heirs can only find shreds of money, and if the origin of the money is assured, then of course it can all be replaced. Oh, blasted. <laughs> oh, that is, so you know what? It's like her dying wish. She's just tearing up all her money. You guys aren't getting a cent out of me. And then now they're probably going to be able to collect it all if, back. Let's just get this out there. If anybody wants to anger their heirs and money is involved, Call me. one eight five five chat byu Call me and I will come personally, remove the money, and make sure legally it is removed from the hands of your children. I will do that for you. Don't take it in your own hands. You could make a mistake. You could cut your finger while you're chopping up your bills. This is the show where we give you the information you need. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Ben's now being passive aggressive because we made fun of his engineering degree. 
Hey, uh, got a great guest coming up. Lars Tveed will be joining us, and we'll be talking about the West and its creative uh, dominance. And uh, it's a really interesting discussion about why are we so successful and why is it that for some reason 95% of uh, the creativity has has been founded and uh, located in the Western countries over the last couple hundred years or three or four hundred years. So interesting discussion. And what does the future look like? Is that, uh, you know, that those countries have gotten very wealthy. Is that wealth going to help or hinder their ability to be creative in the future? Stick with us, folks. We'll find out. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. For hundreds of years, Western societies have uh, dominated in the area of creativity, allowing their cultures and economies to flourish. This is a central observation um, because over a very long term, it is not uh, over the long term. What has ended up happening is our cultures have ended up pushing, propagating, lifting up, furthering, and uh, driving a more creative society in the Western economies. Our guest today, Lars Tfeed, is a finance expert and author of The Creative Society. He joins us on the online to talk uh, more about this creativity theory and how it's the key to stable and strong economies. Lars Tfeed, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate you said my name almost correctly. Did I really? How do you, how do you say it? <laughs> Tfeed. Uh, it's with a soft T. It doesn't work in anywhere else. Well, good luck with that. That's a, <laughs> a Tvida? That's hard. We'll see. Yeah, something like that, yeah. So talk to us, Lars, about this, uh, this study you've been doing. And it, to me, this is such a fascinating um, you know, evaluation that you're trying to, to do here. Creativity and Western society. Let's kind of define our terms as we get into this. When you say um, Western societies – Maybe define what you would call Western societies and creativity. What do you mean by that? Yeah, okay. So Western society was until um, uh, around the year 1500, it was really only Western Europe. Western Europe was 2% of the world's land mass. So it was a very small population on a tiny, tiny nanodat of land. Uh, but then... Um, they discovered America, and then they started spreading out uh, all over the world. So it became Western Europe plus North America plus Australia, New Zealand, and you can argue a few other places. But it's never been more than 10, you know, no matter how you calculate it, it's never been more than 10% of the world's population. But wow. but it became very powerful, as you, as you and indicated. And creativity, meaning the scientific discoveries, the... Arts. I mean, in every way, it's it's flourished. Yeah. So, how to define creativity? There is a very, the best definition I actually have seen is uh, was made by Charles Murray, a social sci- American social scientist. Um, he ma- he wrote a book called Human Accomplishment. It wasn't called creativity; it was called accomplishment. But he had a really really good way to measure it. He had a team of up to fifty people, and they spent five years 
reading international handbooks and encyclopedias from all over the world. And then you, they said, if you're mentioned in more than half or at least half of all these handbooks from you know, any parts, any corner of the world, you must, you must have made a human accomplishment. Hmm. And to me, that's creativity. Yeah. So, it, yeah, this can be music, philosophy, physics, you know, products, anything that will get you into a lot of encyclopedias, uh, that you must have you know, thought of something new or created something new that's really interesting. And, and how far back does your research go? Are we talking 500 years, 600 years, or just a couple hundred years? So in his specific research, they went as as far back as they could put a name to an accomplishment, hmm. and that was two thousand eight hundred and fifty years back, so almost three thousand years. Wow! Um, so that, of course, there's been a bit before that somebody invented the use of fire and the wheel, <laughs> and so we don't know who. Right. But you know, you know, the things we cannot put a name to, maybe a few hundred things, but you know, completely dwarfed by what we have uh, done after that. But in the end, um, your analysis says that the Western cultures then have about 95 percent of the um, creativity has taken place in the Western cultures and, and which is – and why? So if it's only, if it's only 10 percent of the population, what is different about the Western culture or societies that's driving so much success? Yeah, just about the numbers. So – Charles Murray's study, which was such a big systematic study, they made a cutoff date in 1950 because they didn't want to cover recent events. They said, you know, people would put things into encyclopedias and then they'll take it out again right. later. So it has to be a little bit mature. So their number was 97, but, you know, cut off in 1950. What I did was uh, just a few years ago, I went on Wikipedia and then I just looked at, at the present indicators of creativity. So I looked at the best, you know, the highest grossing movies, the best selling books, the most expensive piece of art, um, biggest luxury brands, Nobel prizes uh, given, etc., etc. And I I got to about 95%. Hmm. So so clearly, you know, Asia is is um, is taking uh, much beginning to play a bigger role than it did before. Yeah, like Japan, China, Korea, but, yeah, exactly. But yeah. in in some of your research, you even got – you asked – I guess what you were talking about is once you got into looking into this, you just had more and more questions. One of your questions that was fascinating is why was Hong Kong 17 times more richer than China in 1980? Yeah, yeah. And you have all these examples of, of different uh, neighboring economies where one is so much more prosperous than the other but where the population is the same. The one people – you know. Uh, always mentioned is North and South Korea. Yeah. But I, so I started thinking about um, the role of creativity and what really got me thinking was like, this was more than 10 years ago, but I, I had written a book about general economics and I was making a list of sources. And my book was really about the history of general economics. And then I, I was sitting there, you know, past midnight making this bloody source list. And then um, it just dawned on me, they're all Western. I can't be right. I, I thought, you know, I have to cover everything that is important that has been done all over the world. But they just, it, then I went to the internet and checked, they are all Western. Huh. And um, so I started thinking about the success of Western civilization. The, when I said earlier that we, we were just 2% of the world's population, or, or we lived in 2% of the world's landmass and were tiny, within 10 generations, 
uh, our ancestors, they went from that to controlling 85% of the world's landmass and 85% of the world's economy and ruling the seas. Hmm. So what is the explanation for that? So I started reading a lot of books about theories. So some historical historians would say, oh, there was the, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Age of Discovery, Reformation, all these things that actually happened. Others would say, now, of course, we had uh, beneficial presence of uh, plants and animals that were good for farming. Others would say, you know, good climate and so on. But none of that explains the timing. You know, why did it happen at the time it did? And why did it happen in Europe and in Western Europe, not, in, not even in Eastern Europe, mm. to nearly the same degree? Right. And then um, I had been asked by a Danish publisher to write a book about Western civilization. And I thought, hmm, if I can use that as, as an excuse for studying creativity, which I thought had to be explained, I'll do it. And then I, I, I drafted the entire book. It, at one point, my draft was 800 pages, and you know the <laughs> publisher was uh, yeah. not happy. Um, and then suddenly I was, I, was, I was just sitting and looking at maps, and then suddenly it dawned to me that I'd seen two images that were almost identical. So one image was a map of Europe where Charles Murray, he had put in where 10% or 50% of the creativity happened in, in Western Europe. It's an odd blob on the map. And then I looked at medieval maps of where you had city-states. And then I tried to overlap them, and they completely overlapped. And then it dawned to me that you have to have small city-states or decentralized uh, economy in order to have creativity. And then I went through every time period and compared, and you always had that overlap. And then I was in Greece uh, the next summer, and we were showing, uh, I was with my sister, and we were showing around at Delphi. And then this uh, guide that was showing us around, he said, yeah, so the period where we were super creative, there was about 15 generations, that time we were 700 to 1,000 city-states. And, and a city-state, clarify for us what you mean by a city-state, yeah, so Lars. A city-state is, is, uh, is, uh, is, is a, a nation that is so small that it essentially consists of a town. Okay. A so today uh, you might call Singapore or Hong Kong city-states, but uh, the... The medieval European city-states and the, uh, the classical Greek city-states, these would be places that would have from a few thousand up to a couple of hundred thousand or maybe 400,000 in- inhabitants. Interesting. No but not like a large centralized yeah. government, just a bunch not of independent all. entities. Yeah. So – and then he explained that, you know, going back to classical Greek, that, that – all these small city-states, they were competing like crazy, but they also made shifting alliances. For instance, they made shifting military alliances. So you had all this experimentation going on in each of the different city-states. Um, and then they were competing, you know, who did best. Uh, I live in Switzerland. Um, Switzerland is a bit like that. So it has a tiny central government, and then everything else is done locally in the cantons and, the, and in the local small societies, communities that have on average 2,600 in, inhabitants. Hmm. They compete like crazy. Yeah. And so they keep experimenting on finding the best, you know, the best uh, model. And people move, they vote with the feet. So you move from canton to canton or from one part of the canton to another to get the best deal, to get yeah. you know, what you like. It's interesting. It, it, keeps, it keeps competition up. 
uh, and it yeah. probably keeps monopolies down because we're you're constantly having to compete and create the best widget, the best watch in Switzerland. Yes, yeah, so, and a lot of other things. But what it uh, it keeps competition up, but it also means that that uh, people know that the decisions they make will impact themselves quite directly. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. So there's an immediate immediate benefit. Yeah. So if if we think about what happened in Greece was that Alexander the Great, he he consolidated the whole thing. Then so they became briefly part of his empire. Then it became part of the Roman Empire, then a part of the Byzantine Empire, then a part of the Ottoman Empire. And during all that time where they were part of somebody's empire, they were not creative. Hmm. So there are virtually no entries into the encyclopedias from all that time where they were part of empires. Wow. So... So one central observation is that you have to have all these small units uh, who compete, but also uh, find it easy to cooperate. In, in a sense, you can say the competition keeps up the pressure. Yeah. But the way you innovate is very is largely by cooperating, by creating ecosystems. Yeah, where you can. I mean, and that makes sense historically because you'd want to keep your goods flowing. You'd want to keep lines open and be creative to to work together, but you're still in competition. It's kind of the perfect blend of competition and cooperation. Yeah, I mean, in, um, when I was young and I, I started business, people talked about supply chains or value chains. And that changed later to ecosystems. Mm. So com- now companies say they have ecosystems. Right. So they have these elaborate networks of cooperation, um, which they use to compete against other companies that have elaborate networks of cooperation. Now they use crowdsourcing where they have made it even more sophisticated. For instance, that was, that was how Apple beat Nokia by having this app store. Yeah. Where, where suddenly you have one million apps created by people Nokia didn't, uh, or Apple didn't even know. And there was no way Nokia could uh, keep up with that. That's, I mean, th- this really is, uh, it's eye-opening and it, and it, Kind of, it's a little foreboding on what could happen to the United States as we become um, a bigger and bigger kind of empire. Let's take a break um, and continue this discussion after the break. We're talking about the book, The Creative Society. Um, the author, Lars Tveed, trying to get it right, Lars. Um, we'll continue the discussion on the other side of the break. What's really going on when it comes to uh, the the creativity that you see from Western culture? It's the, the numbers don't lie. About 95% of the inventions, the creativity, the awards, the products, they were coming, they've been coming from the Western culture. Will that change? Uh, do we see any movement? What, uh, what does Lars think about that? We'll continue the discussion. Plus, we'll get into four creative conditions that uh, help to uh, foster creativity. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll get into all of that after the break. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, how uh, how creative are you? We're learning about creativity, especially in a cultural uh, 
you know, focus. Western culture, Western civilizations have apparently cornered the market on creativity, and their creativity has has not only you know created more products, services, awards, benefits, health, all these different things, but also financial gain. And then it seems like uh, maybe what happens is the these cultures end up growing, gaining more and more financially, and then maybe become an empire. <laughs> And maybe becoming an empire isn't the best thing that can happen to your creativity. Joining us from Switzerland is Lars Feed, and he is, uh, again, I just blew his name up, but he's joining us and talking about um, this this study, this evaluation he's been doing about how we, how we drive creativity through our culture and um, how the United States has benefited from being a Western state or a Western civilization. And the Westerners apparently have been ahead in the race, at least for the last while. Um, we, uh, we appreciate you being with us again, Lars. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. You talk about, um, in your book, about four creative conditions that, I guess, help bring about more creativity. What, what, are, what are those conditions and um, are these conditions that are going to last in the Western cultures? Yeah, so you need to have uh, small units. That was, was what we talked about yeah. before. That in, in, in business, of course, you have that. You have millions of companies of different sizes, but you have millions of companies that are, that are interacting, competing, cooperating. So business is inherently uh, creative for that, for that reason. When it comes to the public sector, uh, it's another matter. We can maybe perhaps we should come back to that in a little while. Then you have to, you have to have the networks. So you have to, it has to be easy for people to interact with each other, mm. both you know to cooperate and to compete. So free trade agreements are very important. Traditionally, access ability to sail uh, up rivers, sail on the oceans has been very important. The internet is fantastic. Globes, uh, uh, crowdsourcing. It's mm. also a kind of networking that is really, really good. Yeah. Um, you have to have competition. And uh, I now have to talk about the, the public sector, actually, because if the public sector is one big unit and it, it delivers its services as monopoly uh, services um, without any competition, then it's not going to be creative at all. And so that's one problem that we have that we, we, it's a political decision how many public services a nation will have. Some mm. have, you know, 20% of the economy, some have 50, even close to 60. Um, but there's another decision is how should they be delivered? Should they be uh, delivered by monopoly uh, institutions or should they be delivered through competition? So if you give people, if the money follows the consumer, say the money for education or the money for healthcare follows the consumer, and then the consumer can choose who to go to. Then you will have a lot of innovation and creativity amongst the suppliers. But if you give the money to the institutions, the creativity dies out. Huh. Which is it's interesting because there's a lot of public policy around that, isn't there? Yeah. So, I mean, every nation, every nation, Western nation at least, has an antitrust uh, authority. And so they look at the private business and said, we cannot accept uh, monopolies. Why not? Well, because if you have monopolies, they would say, your services would be expensive and bad. Mm-hmm. So, 
So why don't we tell them to turn around on their heels and look at their own, you know, their own services, the public services? Are they not expensive and bad if they're delivered by monopolies? Is one of the questions I know that you ended up asking is um, as you as you got into the research more is is there can can the public sector become as creative as the private sector? I th- yes, uh, so I think it uh, is it from. For some part, it, it definitely can, and that is if you do exactly what I said, that the money follows the consumer and, and not the institution. Um, and there are some public services where they could even use crowdsourcing techniques. For instance, in some cases uh, where the state sponsors um, research, gives money to research institutions, one alternative is to make innovation awards. And that means, yeah, you're, you're, you're willing to invest one, ten, a hundred million dollars to get something solved. You don't know how to solve it, and you don't know who can solve it, so you just make an innovation award. And then experience shows us that thousands of people will go to work, and you will get the most amazing results. And very often, the best solutions come from complete outsiders. That's true. It was a really, really funny case uh, not so, so long time ago where... There was an innovation award uh, concerning improving the technology for clearing up oil spills. Hmm. And so there were people who uh, submitted proposals for that who were really, truly, you know, industry insiders. There were also uh, quite a few outsiders. And one of the teams that managed to double the productivity uh, was a tattoo artist from Las Vegas who was financed by his client. <laughs> and, and so you see this again and again. You get if if you drop the institutions and just you know say you know here here's a task who can solve it you you get so much creativity. Well, that it's seems so like that it and yet it seems like as we get bigger and bigger, it, it even in the United States you can see policies being made that where the money doesn't follow the consumer, the money follows the institution. And then, yeah. and it starts to break down. We, and we hear we have, right now in our presidential debates, we hear a lot of talk about, you know, single payer systems, whatever. But what, what's yeah, your that, view on a, that? There's another thing we can do when we consider the government. That is, the management style of government is through rules, regulations, and the threat of punishment. And certainly, there are some areas where that is the way. However, there are many in many areas where. Uh, market competition is better so that if you have just a lot of different suppliers of a service and people can, you know, they will report what they experience on the internet, uh, they will use crowdsourcing and what the, the good suppliers, they build up a good reputation and the, the bad ones, they are, they are quickly wiped out. So you get a, reputa- your, a reputation economy instead of an economy that is totally dominated by rules. And what happens if everything is dominated by rules, then, you know, uh, responsibility always has to follow power. So the ones who write the, the rules, they have the power. But the ones who have to follow the rules, they don't feel that they have any power. So they don't feel they have any ultimate responsibility. Hmm. So it, it creates a really bad culture. Yeah. And um, this is this has gone on and on and on. And you can see, as we saw, all of those empires, the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottoman, you, you saw kind of the process of choking off creativity. Um, talk to us about what you see happening for in the future. 
where do you think that this will go over the next couple hundred years? <laughs> yeah, so of course I've been thinking about that. Um, what, what we've seen the last uh, few hundred years uh, is a steady flow of ideas out of Western civilization and uh, all over the world. Uh, so again, with, if 95 or 97 percent of, of all creativity and innovation comes from the West, it means that 90 percent of the people who are not in the West, they do somewhere between three and five percent of the innovation. Yeah. So they are really, really short of ideas. So they import ideas from us. Sometimes they pay for them in, in terms of copyrights and products and so on. Sometimes they're free. And there's been a, a flow of commodities going the other way and, and also of uh, just manpower. So I think um, in the long term, commodities will get cheaper and cheaper. Uh, the many people who think intuitively that we're going to run out of commodities, it seems to be the other way around. So we are, we are approaching having endless energy and uh, also our, our farm areas in the world they started to plateau around 1980 and seem to be poised to go down. So we'll also have lots and lots of food really in the future. So um, the way I see it is that the long-term winners will not be people who have commodities. It will be people who are creative. Hmm. And so it's really, really important that poor countries, countries that are behind, that they they create the institutions and... and uh, and structure the society so that they become far more creative because ultimately it's the only way you can become prosperous. Yeah, it, it, so creativity in your theory is the source of prosperity. Yeah, in the long term it's the only source of, of prosperity because you know, in the Stone Age, I'm sure people worked at, at, at least as much as you and I do. Yeah, right. Uh, but they consumed everything they produced in their life, which was very little. And so... So the only difference between our fairly prosperous life and what they had was that, you know, the ideas that we have had is the only thing. It's nothing else. And even a resource only becomes a resource because somebody has an idea. And, you know, in, in early Stone Age, they didn't know how to make a fire. So wood was not even a resource for making heat at that time. Hmm. Oil was not a resource until somebody thought of that. Um, in the future, we'll use deuterium and and thorium and, and different materials that have not been a resource so far, but they will become resources for us because oh. of technology and our ideas. No, and yeah, I guess that's it. Then it becomes the never-ending source of change and, and new ideas and uh, and sustainability, longevity. Lars Feed, we appreciate you and the great um, insight. This is, to me, this is it's, it's a very important discussion we need to be having, especially in our culture where we, uh, you know, we've got to decide where we're going to take our government and how we're going to take it. So we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there in Switzerland. And uh, we are going to take a break here on the Matt Townsend Show. You be thinking about it. Do you feel like you are going to have, I mean, do you feel like our, is our organization, are the, is the country, is, is the Western culture, the Western societies, are we just going to follow the traditional path of every other kind of society that's fallen? It's an important decision. If we want to, uh, if we want to sustain what we've got, we're going to have to probably make sure that the conditions are ripe for it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back right after the break. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I mean, when you think about it, did you even know 95 to 97% of the creativity or the advancement or progress or accomplishment has taken place in the Western societies, the Western culture? That's crazy. And yet um, we've got to be careful, too, because a lot of people, even the politicians, as they're all talking today, earlier we had a a guest on that was talking about Bernie Sanders, who's a democratic socialist, and, oh, you know what they're going to do. But this is why I think part of the the GOP pushes so hard for capitalistic ideas, but not all the ideas of capitalism – are going to, to or drive the creativity and not all of the ideas from the democratic side are going to drive you know prosperity so there's probably going to be a nice mix remember the four things our guest just talked about we need to have small units competing public sector that's strong but not over regulating networks that are easy to uh, interact in and there's got to be competition those, those ideas don't belong to either party. They belong to just creativity. The minute you stifle those principles, you start to stifle creativity. And if we're not careful, we will stifle creativity by over-regulating uh, the public sector, over-regulating the private sector, by getting too big, too, too big to fail type of organizations so we don't have enough competition in smaller units. I mean, there's a lot of signs right now that the United States is not necessarily moving toward more creativity. We're still riding the wave. Don't get me wrong. But eventually, you got to watch out. You got to watch out, too, because uh, <laughs> an example, though, of this creativity spreading, there's a bootleg KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, that opened in the Iranian capital and was shut down by officials with some reporting um, citing that the U.S. inspired decor as the reason for the shutting uh, shutting down of the KFC. The restaurant, which called itself Halal KFC, and used the same image of Colonel Sanders that serves as the logo for the U.S.-based food chain, was shut down after operating for a little more than a single day. Reports say officials were concerned the decor of the eatery resembles the U.S. flag and can be seen as part of an American influence into Iranian culture. What? difference at this point does it make great question hillary appreciate it i'm just going to finish my story though um the owner told fars news agency his restaurant is not affiliated with u.s chain ali fazli head of the trade chamber of iran told the iranian news labor agency that it is not connected to the u.s kfc chain no western fast food has any branches in iran we have we have legitimately stolen it from the United States. We are in no way connected with him. We stole it and it is now ours. It is bootlegged. So there is no connection with the United States of America. Oh, well, then in that case, open back up. (sighs) Creativity is alive and well, folks, even in Iran, using Western ideas. We'll take a break. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. It's in the can. We'll be back. More ideas, more tools next hour. Stick with us, helping you find the good in the world right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's Friday, folks. You've almost made it. A few more hours. And you can go sleep, veg, or whatever you do on Saturday. Saturday, I've got a very busy day tomorrow. Got all my kids' football games. Got a big date night thing we're doing. Got to go figure out what I'm going to do there. Oh, I was going to ask you what's the topic, but you don't. Uh, the topic is celebrating the differences in your marriage. Really? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. long do you have to talk for? Just, uh, I don't know, two and a half hours, two hours. Mm. Show tunes? I'll probably throw in some show tunes. A little soft shoe? I do a lot of soft shoe. Okay, that's good. People like that. Jazz like, hands. I like to do my jazz hands. They like a good showman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a little vaudeville. Yep. That, that could take up an hour and a half. So if you just have an hour of speaking, I think you're covered. I'd rather probably speak than do the show tunes. Do you bring up the whole family? I could bring up the whole family. I will probably have one. My son will play some music maybe. Okay. We got to do a – yeah. I, we do the a tribute to all of the Broadway shows. <laughs> we do a lot of stuff. You do Cats? We do cat. Oh, cats is my favorite part. That's good. Everyone yeah. gets in their cat suit. Uh huh. Okay. Have you ever seen these me in a date, cat suit? These date nights sound awesome. By incredible. the way, incredible. They are incredible, and um, they're a laugh a minute. See, because I came in Monday morning, and there's all these people that are on Twitter talking about how great the date night was. Yeah. So you may want to mention our show's Twitter account oh, that people gr- can follow. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. Okay, I'll do that. You had me do, writing that down right now. A few months ago, you had me mention the Fatberg story because mm-hmm. you were going to drop that into a date night uh-huh. discussion. Yeah, and I forgot to do that. Yeah, I kind of felt like maybe you did because I I sent you the story and then right. I was supposed to I set it up so it would you tweet know, out at a specific time. I, and, I think a lot of things before these events. I think through a lot. Okay, and then I forget it all right when I'm on stage. What it is, I can't remember all the lines to the songs from Cats. Okay. So once I get in there and I have to remember those lines, I tend to forget all the other stuff, like the Fatberg and all that other good stuff. All right. I forgot about it. But I will will for sure drop the uh, Dr. Matt Show, at Dr. Matt Show, Twitter handle. I'll do that. Um. I wanted to bring this up because this – I don't know why. This just reminded me of Ben and it's Friday. Did Uh-oh. you did you hear about – I don't know why it reminded me of you, Ben, but I thought you'd get a kick out of it. Oh, thanks. Did you hear about the live tapeworm that's still wiggling and it was removed from a California man's brain? Yeah. Luis Ortiz can't remember much about his nearly three-month hospital stay this last fall. It almost killed him, by the way, because he had an intense headache. And after suffering or suffer debilitating pain, suffering debilitating pain that made him sick, he he went to the doctor, and the doctors found a live tapeworm trapped in the depths of his brain. Ugh. Can you believe this? 
It was still wiggling and moving around. No wonder he had a headache. I mean, I have a headache and I don't even have a tapeworm, I don't think. By the way, I had a tapeworm. I lived in Argentina for two years. I had two tapeworms. Did you lose a lot of weight? Yes. Slick and Slider were their names. You named them? Oh, yeah. Okay. We were close. Apparently. When you're very, that close to close. a worm, we were very close. And they did. They helped me lose weight. It was a great thing. I'm not against tapeworms. Did you hear the other tapeworm story? No. Are there more? There are. What? I just found it here. It says, in a case that doctors are describing as crazy, because how else do you describe a tapeworm story? Well, I have crazy. A 41-year-old Colombian man was found to host cancerous tapeworm tumors in his brain and other bodily organs. Cancerous tapeworm tumors. The man suffered from HIV, mm-hmm. which diminishes your immune system. Right. He had a tapeworm. They start looking into it, and they they're like, okay, so his tumor doesn't have like human cells, the the, the traits that a, a human would have right. as they have cancer. And they started looking and like, this looks like a tapeworm. So they sent it to the CDC in Atlanta. Oh boy! And what they found out was the guy didn't have cancer. The tapeworm had cancer, and then transferred it to the guy. Holy cow. And so they're saying this is one of the first documented cases that they know of that someone caught cancer from something else and it was transferred to them. And so they're wondering how many cases of this actually have exi- It's just tapeworms are, are bad news. We're getting in trouble for tapeworm stories. Let's not do that anymore. <laughs> I just wanted to throw one out there. And now we've I, got I wanted two to share. There. No, let's not. I wanted ben, to share. Ben, do you have a tapeworm? No, okay. So Moving on. Let's do this. Let's uh, one go to the time. Uh, coming up in just a few minutes, Rod, Gust- Rod Gustafson will be joining us. Uh, we'll be talking about some of the movies that are being released. Spectre, including, uh, you know, James Bond is back. Spectre. It's, it seems to be fairly popular. Yeah. We'll also get into Suffragettes, which seems to be very popular. We'll talk uh, to Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews in just a few moments about that. But before we do, let's get to the headlines with our own Terry South. Terry? Thanks, Matt. Tonight is a chance to hear from the Democratic candidates for president as they will gather at Winthrop University in South Carolina for a presidential forum. Because of rules previously agreed upon, the candidates will only participate in a limited number of debates. So tonight, each candidate, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Martin O'Malley, will be interviewed one-on-one with MSNBC host Rachel Maddow. In an interview, Maddow says she wants to ask questions that she doesn't know the answer to, which she hopes gets the candidates off their stump speeches and talking points. The forum starts about 8 p.m. Eastern, whenever the opening ceremonies end. Because hmm. they all have opening ceremonies. Oh, they do? Yeah. Is that but, like where they light the torch? Say the Pledge of Allegiance. Or oh, that wh- whatever they do. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. There's different things. Um, but do you think we'll have another CNBC type No, it's situation. Rachel Maddow, and she'll just intellectually engage each one of them individually. Do you like the one-on-one format versus no. a debate? No. Do you think we'll learn something different in a one-on-one format versus a debate? Probably not. Probably not? I don't think so. I mean, it's... I don't know. I guess a lot more time, so we yeah. should learn something new, but... Hopefully. I found with politicians, there's not a lot of new stuff to learn. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much opportunity keep, to talk to them. They though. just keep saying the same thing. The U.S. economy added two, uh, 271,000 jobs in October. The Labor Department said this morning the unemployment remained edged down to 5%. Analysis had uh, fo- forecast that the U.S. employers added 185,000 jobs 
and the or 185,000 jobs and the unemployment rate would hold steady. This report is closely watched because it may offer hints on whether the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates in December. A strong report would give the Fed confidence to boost interest rates. So actually, we had more jobs than predicted. Uh, last month, Donald Trump tweeted that Sheldon Adelson is looking to give up big dollars to Rubio because he feels he can mold him into his perfect little puppet. And he says, I agree. That's how he talks about some of these donors that uh, some of the Republican candidates go to. The Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson is a uh, Las Vegas yeah. casino owner that has a lot of money. People go to him to get uh, money to help out their campaigns. What Trump failed to mention was that he had wanted the staunchly pro-Israel Adelson's money also, but was turned down. Trump, so, that, so that Trump could be molded. Trump prides himself in funding his own presidential campaign and flying solo with a, without a super PAC. And yet, according to sources who spoke with Politico and The New York Times, Trump has reached out to some of the biggest names in the Republican mega donor, donor world, including Adelson, Paul Singer, and the Koch brothers, all while he's been publicly expressing disdain for his fellow 2016 GOP presidential candidates for trying to woo mega donors. Hmm. You don't say. <laughs> Sounds like politics to me. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, the the uh, Census Bureau has put out a bunch of data dealing with what languages are spoken in the United States. Hmm. Kind of interesting. Those who speak Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese at home are less proficient in English than Spanish speakers, according to striking findings from the Census Bureau released on Tuesday. That suggests some Asians may have a tougher time mastering English than Hispanics. Yeah. Just hmm. one of the things they found. Overall, Americans speak more than 350 different languages at home, including some 150 Native American languages. Wow. Some of which have so few speakers that the Bureau declined to release the totals for fear, fear that it would identify an actual individual. Oh, my heavens. We're <laughs> so down to Jimmy. We're down to one guy or something. City. Oh, that's just... So to protect privacy, they didn't name the Man, language. Man, how do you keep a language alive? That's a scary deal. You eventually could lose your language. Your... So if I made up my own language, would that be counted? Well, have you heard Ben do Pig Latin? He thinks that's his own language. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people do Pig Latin. I know. So in the country's largest cities, English is actually a minority language. A staggering 54% of residents in Los Angeles, their metropolitan region, speak a language other than English at home. As do 51% of Miami area residents, 40% of San Francisco, 38% of New York, 37% of Houston, and 36% of Washington, D.C. Wow. Did um, The language is a big deal. Yeah? Because languages are hard. They are. But I get the Asian languages because they're not Latin based. That's and so you know English Latin based. So it's it seems a little easier. I walked in today. Ben was speaking his own language today. That's what he does really? every day. And I'm like Ben, use your words, pal. <laughs> so just interesting how uh, we have a, a diverse yeah, nation, obviously, cool. and there's lots of languages spoken. But 350. And then it says 150 Native American languages, some of which have so few that they declined to crazy. name them because they would yeah. identify an individual. Oh, I hope we're not losing. I mean, that's sad to lose something like that, lose a, an entire language that was held by a Native American tribe. That's, that's sad. Um, Got to be careful. We're going to take a break, folks. When I come back, we'll be speaking with Rod Gustafson about uh, some of the movies being released this weekend uh, and uh, like Spectre and Suffragettes. We'll get into both of those. Uh, we'll be talking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Preview. So stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
be well, playing something. Oh, welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are getting ready to talk to uh, Rod Gustafson, um, who's joining us from ParentPreviews.com. And Rod, if you remember, is a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. He's a film reviewer, a media analyst. He's on the show every Friday to help us get ready for the weekend so we know what movies to go to, what movies our children could uh, safely go view. Today we're talking about Spectre and Suffragettes. Rod Gustafson, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. Great to have you. When I think about it, Rod, it really... um, I've been waiting for this Bond movie. It's got some press, you know. uh, The uh, Daniel Craig had some negative press about the whole Bond series. But um, talk about the movie for me. What'd you find? What is it? Is it as uh, is it a Bond movie? Does it feel like a Bond movie? It's been interesting watching Daniel Craig make his way through the through the Bond franchise. Of course, this is his fourth one, and his earlier movies to me did not feel like the typical Bond movie. I noticed there was a definite uh, pushback on the role that women were playing. They weren't as much eye candy and um, play things for Bond as much as they were starting to actually fulfill meaningful uh, roles within the plot, if you can imagine, That's in a great. Bond film. Yeah. And, and if Daniel Craig was just being, it, it was a little more serious. But Spectre, is kind of rolled back the clock to mm. the 1960s again. This one, it, it's it's interesting. It takes old school spying, and it has a lot of those older elements from James Bond movies, and kind of contrasts that against the, the new technology of today. Wow, I mean, it's. Do you think this will be his last one? I don't know how that works, but I mean, he seems tired. Yeah. He, well. You know, he still comes across very well as a Does character. He? he really he really controls the screen, which anybody who's playing Bond needs to do. Yeah. Just like when Bond walks into a room, everybody notices. Well, when he walks onto the screen, we should all notice as well. But, of course, yeah, Daniel Craig's comment is, I won't do, the only reason I do another one is for the money. Ah. <laughs> Uh, I had to, uh, at least he's honest, right? Yeah. So that's why most of us go to work. So this is where Spectre, you know, makes its reappearance. Yes, the organization yes. Spectre is back in the Bond movies. I see what you're saying. Yes, yes, that's right. And so this movie does actually it pulls you know a lot of little story threads, and especially within the the Daniel Craig four movies, um, you do well to watch the previous ones, um, especially Skyfall and perhaps even Quantum of Solace. And it's so that you understand some of the story threads that are coming into play here. But it, basically the story is as usual. There's a big, bad, evil guy, and he is wanting to take over the world. And in this case, what he's done is he's created a private enterprise that is offering to take um, all of the security concerns of many first world countries and bring them all together under one umbrella. So why bother funding MI6 or the CIA anymore? I'll handle all your problems for you. Well, of course, there's a big issue with that. We've got some guy who's accountable to nobody who wants to have all the world's intelligence in his computers. And so you've got this high-tech guy and what is happening is, of course, Bond is going to save the day. There's the big spoiler. Can you believe it? Bond wins. (laughs) But... Um, what is interesting is they, they, they've kind of given up, I think, on the gadget-laden Bond because 
we have so many amazing gadgets in reality today, it's hard to come up with new ones. And so it's really Bond is this old school spy and he's up against this guy who's got all this new technology and who's going to win. Well, I'm going well, with Bond. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's and that, cool. of course, we know it's no spoiler to give that away. We know the Bond is going to save the day. So if you come to this movie expecting Bond, I don't think you'll be disappointed. That really is what you're going to get. And of course, from a parent's perspective, the biggest issue here is going to be violence. There is a lot of violence in this film, but it's Bond violence. The Bond has never had a lot of blood or explicit detail in the violence, and but you get a lot of it. So that's what you can expect here. But the, the sensuality factor is a little higher in this one. I was happy with the Daniel Craig ones where the women, as I mentioned earlier, we, they weren't playing that, you know, kind of plaything role that has right. been happening in, I mean, in previous decades. In this one, though, that comes back a little bit more. And there's two different women that he has interludes with. But again, the sexual content in this film is what we call fade to black sex, where things begin to happen for a moment and then it fades to black. And then we pick up either the next morning or a few hours later. So fortunately, the sexual content isn't a huge concern, but there certainly is implied hmm. sexual relationships in the middle. In what the movie. grade did you give this? So overall a C plus, which is it, this is our we always laugh. Our C plus grade is our this is a pretty well made movie, but just falls short of being appropriate for any ages of kids, and mainly because of the violence yeah. is our concern in this film. So parents, you'll want to be careful if your teens are interested in seeing this movie. You'll maybe either go see it first or read through our review so you can get all the details. And they can get your review at parentpreviews.com. Talk about the other movie, I guess, coming out, Suffragettes. I haven't I heard would much love about that. Yeah, that's the problem. Nobody has. I would love to talk about this movie. This is a movie about the suffragette movement in the UK, in England, that was happening near the turn of the, uh, I still think I'm living in that century, during the (laughs) turn of the 21st century. And it really, um, it strikes me. I guess the part, Matt, that I forget is less than 100 years ago, women could not vote in England. And women could not vote in many, many countries 100 years ago. That is how recent this movement was. And so this is a movie that details some of the happenings that were going on while women were trying their best peacefully to convince the government that they should have the right to vote, but then they finally start resorting to other tactics because they have been trying for decades. The government hasn't budged. And so they start doing protests and start doing some things that start, that start crossing the line as far as being legal. But we understand why this is happening. And it's, I think it's a very enlightening movie, very well done. Uh, Helen Bonham Carter, Meryl mm. Streep. I mean, there's some big names in this film. But what's interesting is that it's playing in a handful of theaters. And you've really got to wonder, is Hollywood still not on board? Yeah, with, uh, yeah, yeah no, women? apparently not, huh? Uh, I'm, I'm really, really surprised. You know, often uh, people accuse Hollywood of still being prejudiced against women and that women don't get good parts in movies and that type of thing. And I admit that as I have watched this over the years, some of that is true. It is very difficult for female um, uh, actors to be able to find projects that really will carry them forward in their careers because especially when it comes to history, so many of our stories revolve around a male protagonist. So I think it's a shame when we get a good movie that has an important message like this. Why is it in? I think it's in 250 theaters mm. or something. Oh, and wow. 
Spectre is in 4,200. You know, <laughs> it needs to balance out a little bit. More. Absolutely. Is, uh, and what grade did you give suffragettes? B plus on suffragettes. Now, there, there are some content concerns. All of our content is in the C's on this movie. And so parents may wonder, well, why is everything in the C's and you're giving it a B plus? Well, this is a historical film that's got a very powerful and a very important message. But there is some violence. There is some sexual content because uh, some of these women were being taken advantage of by their employers. And there is one scene that briefly shows that. There's no nudity, no detail. Uh, but, but we do know what's happening. Mm. There is some profanity in it, not much, but a few words. And we also have some drinking in this movie and smoking as well. So it sounds like that, that's one we all need to go out and see, and that'll drive them to take it to other theaters. I, I hope so. I hope that perhaps somehow this movie can get a little bit wider release. Maybe it'll get noticed during the awards season. I don't know. But it, it certainly is a, a movie that, it, that does tell a very important historical yeah. story. Well, Rod, keep up the great work, uh, you and Donna and all your team there at uh, parentpreviews.com. Everybody, go look up the website, parentpreviews.com. You can go through all of their past reviews, and, uh, and they've got uh, great uh, reviews that will be coming up in the next few weeks as well. We'll get into those next week. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We appreciate uh, Rod's time, and uh, boy, we got an interesting uh, next segment for you. Our two producers, Ben and uh, Joe, will be joining us. Just They're going to try to educate me, teach me the wild ways of these crazy millennials. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeez, <laughs> my producers. Hey, we're joined by two of my producers, Ben Wasden, a.k.a. Benny and the Ben, and uh, Joe Carson, or Joe Carson. How are you, guys? Two of the producers that get this show on the air, and uh, actually one that gets it on the air, and then Ben, who sometimes is going to get us taken off the air. Yeah, I'm I'm the liability of the group, but yes, but you're a good liability. We we always like to do um, a segment with the producers so that everybody can get a taste for what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, remember, we're, we're, we shoot this from BYU, where we have all these young, uh, incredibly talented producers that are on the show with me, and they today are going to try. Well, I, the the question I have is because I'm a connoisseur of music, right. And um, but my problem is I used to just buy it and download the songs I liked. But all the all the youngins, all the kids are out there. No one's buying the music anymore. They're just kind of leasing it from these download sites, Spotify or whatever. And I think it's crazy. So teach me. What am I missing here? Well, Spotify is a music streaming uh, website and app. That basically has access to, I think, 30 million different songs. Oh, my god. So heavens. basically an endless catalog of music, everything you could ever want to listen to, except Taylor Swift. She's not on Spotify. Yes, she ticked them all. Yeah, she's like, you're not taking my music unless you pay me more. Which uh, you know, totally bumps me out. But there are two. If you want it, I've got it on mine. 
<laughs> maybe maybe I need to forsake my music streaming. But so there are two options with Spotify. You can either get it for free, which still gives you access to all the songs, but you can only listen in shuffle mode or on radio mode. Or you can pay a premium of nine ninety nine, which gives you unlimited access to everything, any huh. song you want. Basically, like you own thirty million songs. You pay nine ninety nine a month, and then you own. You can get. You can listen to any song as much as you want. As much as you want. You can even make it available to access offline. You can pretty much download it onto the Spotify app and listen even when you don't have internet. See, okay, that sounds like a good idea. It is. Except it's the future. Nine ninety nine. I could buy nine songs or ten songs and listen to them forever. See, this this brings us into a different aspect of the streaming culture. Yes. Because you also have Pandora and Pandora is it's pretty much you type in the kind of music you want mm-hmm. and then it will throw different kind different songs at yeah. you. And so you're able to open yourself up to new different new kinds of songs, yeah, new kinds I don't of do that. genres. Right. And and honestly that that's why millennials are so open-minded compared to your generation. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> My generation? You mean the generation? Your generation, yeah. Yeah, that's we mean yours. That's so rude. So your music helps you be more open-minded. Yeah, because we're, we're receiving so many different ideas mm-hmm. and, and cultures through the different genres that we hear. In an instant, you could be listening to a completely different genre, something you've never heard before in your entire life. And and just maybe you, you become a fan. What, why? Why would you do that? Where else could you do that? Like, Well, that's why you listen to the pan flute music, Ben. Yeah, and then that, that throws me to Bob Marley. Then it flows me, throws me back to the pan flute. I mean, that's, that's amazing. That is a big swing. That's whiplashable. Um, so you guys like it because it, it, you think it broadens your mind. Absolutely. But what about owning something? Don't you want to like own a song? Do you want to own it so it's yours? It's like in your back pocket like a vinyl. Like you, you have a vinyl and you put it on your record player. And you own it. You know, Matt, back in your day, uh, <laughs> <That is so laughs> like you'd have to kind of put on your knickers and then head down the lane to the corner shop. My knickers. <laughs> pull out your canvas bag full of silver rounds and, and buy a record. Uh, but but there is a trend among millennials yes. to not own things. Not even knickers? Not even knickers. Not that's, even uh, not even music. That's going to get you in trouble. So you really don't – you don't want to own it. You don't? No. No, but, we don't. Is that why like when I'm in a meeting and I'm like, OK, so who's the one that blew this problem and, and the guest didn't show up? That's why none of you will own it? <laughs> well, it's none of our faults. That's right. Because you don't own anything. <sighs> But so there's there's this really compromise between so you can either own the music and listen to it whenever you want, right. or you can borrow the music, yeah. um, expand yeah. your your library, and you can also it's it's kind of like it's efficiency and it opens up your mind. Yeah, that's the that's the theory. Is it opens up our mind? Huh. Not just the theory. It's it's fact. Is there, there are researches, re- research and studies done. Uh, here's one right here, as a matter of fact. Do you happen to have one? I happen to have one. Um, so millennials, 
they're battered by student loan debt and oh, yeah. the, the Great Recession of 2008. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we've kind of had our run with owning things. We've seen what it's like to lose it all. Right. And so when you don't have anything to lose if you don't own it, you don't lose anything. See, that's an interesting mentality though, is it? Because I learned why rent when you can own it. You know, you just own it. So I own 10 songs a month for the same price that you're borrowing them. And then when this whole thing tanks and this whole thing falls apart, I can go sit and listen to all the music I want. And you guys are going to have to just pull out a pan flute and hope to learn <laughs> to pr- play it. But this goes back to the efficiency of the millennials, which we have much of. You're highly efficient. Um, because with your 10 songs, you're you're losing money from the opportunity costs of not listening to those songs, right? And when we share our songs with other people yeah. via it's like Spotify, communism. no, it's it's maximizing the the opportunity costs. Yeah. See, and not just that, but if you bought nine songs off of iTunes every single month, it cost you nine dollars. Um, but millennials are listening to more music than anyone. Ever about twenty five hours a week on average of music streaming, so that's if, interesting. If you think about how many songs you could listen to in twenty five hours, but I mean, I guess the assumption is that I would want to listen to a lot of new songs. That is instead true. Instead of the same old ten songs over and over and over and over. And that brings us back to the point that millennials are more open minded. It says here that more than sixty percent of listeners said that they were always trying to find new music. They're always trying to gain a new perspective on, on Interesting. life. Interesting. It's weird how you're swinging this. You're swinging it like you're more open-minded. Yes. And yet you guys aren't open to just buying the songs. You have to just keep going back to this one or two sites. Oh, there's more doesn't than two. Seem, there, are, there are dozens. There's Amazon Prime Music. Oh, yeah. There's are. Apple Music, which recently acquired Beats Music. Uh, there's iHeartRadio, huh. there's SoundCloud, and there's Tidal. Man, it's taking off. And I, I just, <clears throat> I just did the math, oh, and it would take about five. So you pay ten dollars for ten songs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so if you were to buy a song every day, um, it would it so. If you were to use Spotify instead, it would take 5,000 years to pay the difference between Spotify and iTunes. Yeah. You know what's weird about the end of that that 5,000 years? Yes. I don't own my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably be gone. You know what I mean? I mean, I'll, be, I'll, look like, I'll look horrible. Don't get me wrong. I'd look horrible, but I could listen to anything I wanted to because I own it. I'm just saying. But you'll be dead. And would you even have the same music taste in 5,000 years? That's very true. No, but no, but every year I'd just be adding the songs that meet my taste, but I'll always be able to go back to the oldies. I, Who, I someday, mean, I, I know Elvis was big in your day. I don't know. Huge. Elvis sound was, huge. was invented 5,000 years ago. No, there was sound. But Are you, you didn't sure? know it unless you were there in the forest. When the Did they have to have subtitles back <laughs> 5,000 years you ago? Guys, you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. But um, do this. Let's go down the hall and talk to Don. And Don will fix it. Don will show you. Don knows what I mean. Well, all we're saying is that as millennials, we're more efficient and more open-minded than your generation. That, that's yeah. really what we were trying to get that's at true. with no, this seg- just segment. Basically, well, it's a good segment. 
we're better than you, and that's that's just kind of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it we we didn't want to say it like that, but now that but you did, it's, it's kind it, of yeah. true. Yeah. You know what? And I appreciate that. Um, ben Wazden and Joe Carson, it's true. You are more open-minded because the other day Ben did agree that there are more engineers than just train engineers, <laughs> and his open-mindedness shows that. So we appreciate that. Uh, good job, guys. Appreciate it. We're going to now uh, take a break, go listen to our music, go talk to Don, figure out what's really – uh, you know, where whether you should buy or rent your music. We'll find that out. Uh, stick with us. We'll come back to our uh, good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up at the top of the hour with their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. Ooh, great tunage and a perfect segue to get down to our buddies there at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, Jerem and Jason Shepard. How are you wow. doing, gentlemen? We're doing great. <laughs> is that Jerem? That is Jerem. Jason, we do love rock and roll. That you was Spencer from San Jose. <laughs> you wouldn't embarrass yourself like that, would you, Jason? Uh, well, I mean, I don't consider it embarrassing yourself. Well. There you go. It's all about attitude. That's what I'm saying. It's all about attitude. Hey, by the way, guys, I forgot to introduce it. Um, Happy Nachos Day. Oh, yeah. We actually discussed, or our our producer discussed, the possibility of actually going and buying nachos and having them on the set for the show today. Do it. We declined, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? Festive. I don't don't know why we declined. (laughs) We probably should have just run with that. But, yeah, we said no. I'm not sure why now that we did that. You know what? What are you going to do? Because you could have said, uh, is it San Jose State? Is that who we're playing? I think so. You could have said, hey, San Jose State, it's Nacho's Day. It's not Nacho's Day. There was a similar joke yesterday <laughs> from Michael Lisa saying, can San Jose State win this game? No way, San Jose. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Jason, That's you're going to have yeah. to pick your game up, dude, to get yeah, a really I'm good. Yeah, have to come up with clever puns. Yeah. No, do that. Yeah. Just do it. Hey, do that. Say, it is Nacho's Day, and we just want to say to San Jose, it's Nacho's Day. Say that. Just do okay. that, Jason. I promise. I'm a professional, dude. But wouldn't it be funnier if it was, it's Nacho Day? No, 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 no. It's, <laughs> no, no, because you don't have a Nacho. Nacho Day. You have Nachos. I think it's all good in the hood, man. Let's <laughs> see. <laughs> You guys, did you did you just have a uh, millennial on? Yeah, we yeah we I do a little millennial segment yeah. where they try to convince me that millennials <laughs> are up to par. Um, I don't want to debate that fact. Okay, but good. I had a guy on Twitter the other day come at me thinking I was Michael Elisa, by the way. Oh yeah, um, who was extremely condescending. Oh uh, no, about my millennial status. Oh really? I don't know anything. <gasps> yeah, I think that's a dangerous place to go. I do too. Let's you know just what? not. Let's just not. Why do we need to classify who's smarter or better? In no, that? you don't. See, yeah. my problem is I'm not sure where I fit in this because you've got you've you have got an identity crisis. You, you have you have the baby boomers. Uh-huh. You have the Gen Xers, mm-hmm. yeah. and you have the millennials. So but let me. T- I don't know where I'll I'm tell at. you. I'll tell you where you fit. 18 to 34. If you're 30, 18 right now to a 34 year old right now, mm-hmm. you're you're a millennial. Okay, so I'm not. I'm 39. Okay, yeah. See, so you're. So dead. I'm a Gen Xer. You're, you're a Gen Xer. See, but I don't necessarily consider myself that either. I, I don't necessarily reflect the views of well, a lot of Gen Xers. Me, I think I probably, in my soul, yeah, 
I kind of feel like I'm a baby boomer. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, <laughs> well, let, uh, you love Tom Brokaw. I, I will. Do, if you love Tom Brokaw, this if is you, the greatest generation. If you wear, <laughs> if you wear, <laughs> if you wear your pants up into your rib cage and tighten down the belt, you, and my you friend, wish that jukeboxes were in every restaurant. <laughs> how about how about I call myself a baby Xer? Oh, it's getting weird. A blexer, <laughs> a blexer. No, yeah, you, you are. By the a way, chin boomer. <laughs> Don't you know what? No, because now, now it sounds. Stop. Like, yeah. I'm stopping. It just sounds. You're going to get in trouble. Yeah, it is. It is weird walking by Jason sometimes before we start our meetings. He's looking into you know a puddle and he's saying, "Who am I?" Yeah, <laughs> I always think that's a little odd. No, it's better than Narcissus who looked in the puddle and fell in because he thought he was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, they're in. Lies the problem. Hey, by the way, it's not only Nachos Day; it's also Saxophone Day. If you guys want to work that into your show, oh yeah, it's also Love Your Lawyer Day. Let's talk about saxophones for a moment. Okay. Have you seen the YouTube videos of the guy that plays the, I'm never gonna let dance again, no. on his saxophone? He'll just walk into public places. From Wham? <laughs> like, nah, nah, nah. Yeah, he'll just come in and start playing that like in the food court of a mall. Will he or really? Or in a classroom at a college. And then what do people do? Do they look at him like... Uh, they laugh, and then the teacher gets, or you know, authorities get mad. Have you heard this guy that walks in? There's this, this is so crazy. There's this one guy that walks into restaurants, and this is what he does. Yeah. Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship. Oh! Spencer? <laughs> yeah, that was that Jeremy. You? That was Jeremy. And then that's Spencer's hernia yodel. Yeah, blue goggles, exactly. <laughs> hey, yeah. um, did you guys hear the big news about the woman who... Posted uh, her $800 horse race winning ticket on Facebook, and then her friend stole her winnings. Yeah, that's going to happen. See, that's why you don't post your winning ticket with the scannable barcode on it. <laughs> and then her one of her good buddies from her Facebook page. Former went, good buddies. Yeah, yeah former, former buddies. Went and took and, and scanned it and actually got the money. I think More that's just story. being opportunistic, really, mm-hmm. if you think about I it. I mean, take uh, what the defense gives you. That's exactly what I'm saying. I was doing, I was gonna, I was getting the money for you, <laughs> and then I was gonna take you to dinner on your money. So, do you uh, think, do you think that person unfriended them? Yeah. I'm pretty sure <laughs> she was unfriended. <laughs> She's officially been unfriended. By the way, the horse Prince of Penzance, 100 to 1 odds. There was a horse named Jimmer Fredette. Was it really? Her, yeah. Someone named their horse Jimmer. And why wouldn't you? That's a great question. Well, I, I mean, that's kind of is that is that a compliment for Jimmer? I mean, if I your name so, I mean, it depends oh, yeah. on the horse. You want to name well, your horse a winner, right? Well, what horses if you're in bo- band names? Yeah, that's where you want to be. <laughs> oh, we should start a band and call ourselves Jimmer Fredette. The, G- the Jimmer Fredette. Hey, Pearl Jam started out as Mookie Blaylock. That's right. And then their first album was called named Ten as an ode to his. Dream that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Or you could just name it Jimmer Mookie. Can you see how weird that would be if a saxophone just walked into Dude, it? Dude, your falsetto is incredible. <laughs> like, serious. Said no one ever. No, I just said it there. I just said oh, it there. thank you. It's – honestly, a lot of guys on sports shows can't get as up as high as you can. Uh, verticals and voice? Both. Okay. You just amaze check. me. Amaze me! Hey, um, uh, you guys doing your show today? No, you, you, we're taking still, the day off. Taking the day off? It is a game day. Yes. What, what are, so, you gonna, are you going to talk about the game, or are you just going to talk about something else? Soccer? Yeah, golf. we're going to talk about all things BYU. That's the name of the show, in fact, BYU Sports Nation. That's right. Uh, game day, BYU at San Jose. We'll talk San Jose State. We'll talk to Spencer Linton of BYU Sports Nation fame. Mm-hmm. We'll talk to Justin Allegri 
I'm going to say it with an accent all Dang. day. That was great. He's the play-by-play for them. We're going to tell you how to stay awake tonight during the second half because the game kicks off, kicks off, kicks off yeah, it kicks at off. 11.30 Eastern time. What? Yeah. It's Are on you, CBS Sports Network. It, Matt, seriously, you just get a nap in. We, we have other suggestions. Gen yes, Xers have, and baby boomers, we can't stay <laughs> up that late. <laughs> have your, car, your cartoons don't matter on Saturday. Here's uh, the deal. Yeah. Just have, have dinner at like 4. <laughs> like you always do. Yeah. You know, I'll get, go get have in the there, brunch, the, the, early, the early bird <laughs> and then brunch. Get dinner at four. You get it, first of all, you get a deal on the price. Yeah, yeah. You get to eat early. <laughs> and then you get a nap from about 7 to 9. Uh-huh. Wake up in time to get your snacks ready. Possibly mm. nachos. Watch countdown to kickoff. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. At 10.30 Eastern. There you go. I mean, we've got your day planned for you. But we what? have other, other options, and we're going to be taking those from fans. When do I put Ben Gay on my, my sore legs? Always. Okay. Well, since you normally put that on at 643, I would stick with that plan. <laughs> you have no idea how accurate you are. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's almost like you're putting me down, but it feels so good. Like That's, ben, that ben is ben a ben late ben. show. Holy cow. That's a crazy kickoff. Oh, yeah, well. I, so I produced the pre- and post-game show, so I, I've anticipated that we are walking out of here at 1.30 a.m. Oh. time. Do you know nothing good happens after midnight? I've heard that. Well, then I hope BYU wins before the. That's, that's absolutely not true. <laughs> okay, I'm just checking. Oh well, a lot of fun happens after midnight. That's true. That's, that's the. Phrase that's what I've that heard. No one ever that, says. Yeah. That's what that's what the infidels always say. Um, <laughs> let's take a. Uh, I got to let you guys go. President, you, weird, right? You guys, he called yesterday. Jeez. Wanted me to talk to you about it. Um, hey, Benedito uh, Sergio Antunes dos Santos. That was the name of my mission. Project. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's a long name. And Joseph Turner. That was a boring name yeah it's not de santos um here's uh here's to you guys have a great show knock them dead thank you remember who you are represent us well hey we will return with honor return with honor thanks gentlemen oh i we they got to get to work i gotta let them go anyway cool stuff hey um a couple of other stories we just got to tell you crazy town Uh, apparently authorities in western pennsylvania say a local judge of elections was arrested after allegedly failing to show up uh, to the polls Tuesday. She didn't show up and instead decided to work at uh, at a jitney driver for the day. What's a jitney driver? Does anybody know? That's weird. The Allegheny County Sheriff's Office says 55-year-old Darren Farmer of North Versailles uh, never came to the North Versailles precinct with the voting equipment, delaying the poll opening by three hours. Authorities say his wife said he dropped her off at a store to buy refreshments for volunteers but then left. They allege he decided to spend the day giving rides for money. (laughs) Farmer faces charges including tampering with public records and obstructing government function. A listed number for him could not be found, so it's unclear whether he has an attorney who could respond to him. for. I have a feeling that he's just kind of forgetful. Oh, it's today? The day we vote? California school district, by the way, a public school district in Northern California, actually, will soon give passing grades to students with failing scores. Really? In order to not demoralize them. The schools will adopt the equal interval scale, which deems a passing grade to be anything above 20%. (laughs) Scores between 80 and 85% get an A-. This isn't giving a student hope, said one angry teacher. It's lowering standards in order to raise grades. 
I would have passed high school if it was like that. I know. You would have nailed it, dude. I would have had like a 4.0. No, you wouldn't have. You would have had about a 1.0, but you would have passed. <laughs> you would have passed. I was trying to hide that fact. I know. But... Uh, let's be real. But we do. You know what? I'll just tell you right now. This won't work. We've tried to do this with Ben. And it it doesn't demoralize him right. It doesn't. But he also thinks he's a lot better than he is. Right, Benny? I mean, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Wait, am I not good? No, you're fantastic. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. So's your friend Joe. <laughs> Our two millennials today. Anyway, as we like to do, we always want to wrap up uh, the show today and uh, talk about our hero of the day. Taylor Collins is the man behind Oklahoma State's State University's Pistol Pete. That's their, one of their mascots, right? And after a tragic incident you may have heard about at OSU's homecoming parade, Taylor Collins was one of the many who jumped into the middle of the tragedy to help out. A woman drove her car into a homecoming parade at Oklahoma State University, killing four, injuring more than 50 others. Had it not been for dozens of first responders like Taylor Collins, the crisis could have been so much worse. Collins had already finished his parade route as Pistol Pete and was leaving after having breakfast with his sister when he saw a police car speeding past. Collins followed the car, making his way to the parking lot. Collins was flagged down and told a truck was needed to help transport the injured to the hospital. A young boy and his father were loaded into the backseat of Collins' truck and the 12-year-old uh, Aline Campbell was lifted into the truck bed on blankets. The next day, Collins visited uh, um, Aline in the hospital. The preteen suffered a broken leg, concussion, shoulder injuries, and several cuts and bruises. Still, he joked about being saved by Pistol Pete. So, Taylor Collins, you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, folks, really, you're all heroes. A hero is just someone that's there willing to... Uh, help out and lend a hand and uh, Taylor did it but we all can we can, all can be there for each other that's the show my friends uh, again we're here Monday through Friday 9 to noon Eastern time you can find us on iTunes tune in if you want to find the podcast or just join us on Sirius XM 143 BYU radio until tomorrow no Monday because it is Friday until Monday make it a great one take care of each other look after each other and uh Stay tuned for BYU Sports Nation up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll talk to you again Monday.